Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson, and we're back with another pod. Um, we're continuing kind of this series that we've been doing on orthodoxy, the G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, um, as we are, we're on chapter six. I don't know if we're going to make it to chapter seven. My suspicion is that we won't make it to chapter seven, um, but just know that we'll be more than halfway through the book by the end of this podcast. So I don't know if that people will be happy about that or or sad that it's not over. But um, I don't know. I love this book. Chapter six is called The Paradoxes of Christianity. I think this is kind of seems to be, to me, as I was reading through it, seemed to be one of the main points that Chesterton's making through this book that about the pair that Christianity is made up of these paradoxes that, that you have to believe in. And, and, um, and then he also talks about the critiques, the main critiques of Christianity in this chapter as well, mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, ag- atheists have and agnostics have of Christianity and, um, all different sorts of people have of Christianity and that, uh, and so he makes a lot of really cool points. And the way that he writes is always so witty and funny that I I, I, I always like laugh when I'm reading his. Like I'm, I'll yeah. like read a sentence and then I'll, I'll think it's so funny. I'll start laughing. Um, but I he don't know, a, Nick. Yeah, he, oh, has a, he has a he has this ability to create proportions that are just, yeah. Yeah, they, they tend to make you laugh. Yeah. Do you want to give people a bit of a... Um, maybe an overview as to what this chapter generally was about. And then we can maybe talk about some of the quotes and the specifics of it. Yeah. He, he talks about essentially paradoxes and contradiction in thought in this chapter. And he, so he starts with um, this idea that um, Christianity seems to not be rational at certain points. And yeah, he right. says, he says, yep. And that's just like nature. So an alien can come to earth and see a man with two arms, two legs, two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, right? And think that he then must have two hearts. And that's right exactly at that point where he thinks the conclusion is warranted. It's wrong. Mm -hmm. And he said there are these places where Christianity seems to be rational and then it goes illogical. And he said, and I found that in those places, it is an illogical truth, right? And so he Mm -hmm. starts with this idea that like symmetry can't save you. Like just being yeah. rational and therefore assuming symmetry on everything, that if this is like that, that that is like that, actually you lose track of the most important things at the most important moments. And his experience was when Christianity said something that seemed crazy, he found out that it was crazily true, right? Hmm. right. Then he goes on to this the issue of, he said, then I, I read, I spent most of my teens and 20s reading authors who didn't dislike Christianity, mostly modern agnostics. And he basically said, they all criticized the church and they did so contradictorily. So they would say that um, they would say on one side, like for example, one of his examples is is that um, Christianity makes people too meek, too yeah. too like unwilling to fight, and it's also the mother of all wars. Yeah, right. And he's he's yeah. like, and I and he went through he goes through like seven of these, and he's like, I realized at one point that it wasn't that Christianity was wrong about everything, but two things were the case. One, if Christianity was wrong, it was wildly wrong. It was like wrong in every way, all the time. And he was like, that seemed weird. And then he said, as I began to look at the people criticizing Christianity, what it seemed like was that any stick was good enough to beat Christianity with. That it was actually Mm -hmm. highly unprincipled. And then he said, and then I looked at the people who were doing the criticizing and it made perfect sense. Mm -hmm. So he says, it may be that all of these different criticisms are 
describing the most outlandish creature you could possibly imagine. A creature that was both too fat and too skinny, too tall and too short, right? Too loud and too quiet. But then he said, yeah. but it also could be that men of all different extremes were criticizing one thing that mm -hmm. was properly proportioned. So a very tall man might say that Christianity was very short, a very short man, very tall, a very fat man, very mm -hmm. skinny, very a very skinny man, very fat, right? A, a Swede might say that it was he was like too dark and a black man might say that yeah. he was too blonde, right? And you would go through this process of like, he said, maybe it was actually Christianity that was in the proper proportion and that every disproportionate man criticized it in the way he disliked it, right? Yeah, he said, if you look at Christianity the way that these critics were, that it would look like a strange shape. But if you look at it, for, it, but he said it looks like this weird, strange shape because it's too big and too small, too, too not modest enough, but also too modest and all these different things, all the extremes right. of everything. And then, and then he says, but maybe it's actually just the right size in everybody else's view. He's the tall man's, the tall man says it's too short and the short man says it's too tall, but that doesn't mean that it's too tall or too short. It just might just be the right size. That was, right. I it's, thought that was awesome. It's a very clever argument. It's a very clever consider the source argument. Yeah. Right. Cause he, he's right. like, I looked at the men who thought that Christianity was too sexually prudish and I found that they were philanderers. <laughs> right? yeah, and then right. I, you know, and I, so, and so like he, what he recognizes like where people actually have their moral failings is usually where they criticize Christianity. Yeah, right? right. People who, who won't face their doubts are angry that Christianity is too certain. Right. Yeah, right people right. who won't doubt their certainties think that Christianity has too many doubts. Right. Like, yeah. and, and as you know, like people who want to do anything they want with their sexuality think Christianity is too prudish. People who are afraid to love anybody think, you know, Christianity honors marriage too much. Right. Like, and, and so on. Right. 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 So I think, so there's a, like a ton to talk about in this chapter because it feels like, and he's been kind of discussing through the book in some ways his testimony, in a way, his testimony. But this chapter feels very, very much like he's, breaking down the thought processes that he was going through mm -hmm. as he um, is exploring the critiques of Christianity. And then that exploration of the critiques of Christianity start to flip on him. It feels like they start to flip and he starts to realize the act truly irrational critique uh, is, is of Christianity and not necessarily, it wasn't that, that the rational critique was of Christianity, but it was an irrational critique of Christianity that he had to make a decision of whether or not Christianity was this weird shape or whether or not it was the right shape. And that's, uh, right. those are the two options. Either yeah. Christianity is a strangely, is this strange beast you that a sketch artist could mm. never draw. Like if you, if to put it in modern context, if you got 50 of Christianity's critics together and you said, what's wrong with Christianity, right? Yeah, right. And you tried to draw what the, the man they described, <laughs> you couldn't draw such a creature. It would yeah. be the strangest creature that anybody could possibly have ever imagined. He said, or you could imagine that it's a very normal creature that everybody is describing based on their own voluptuousness and idiosyncrasies, right? Yeah. Right. So I, I, I want to say before we get too into this part of it is that that's just half the chapter. The next half of the chapter yeah, right. um, goes into this question of stoicism or a stoic agnosticism mm -hmm. and whether or not you can have a balance of values and virtues. Mm -hmm. And Chesterton says no. Because okay. if you if you balance opposite values, you dilute them both. They actually have to stand side by side with each other, unmixed mm -hmm. and undiminished. Mm -hmm. And even though that seems crazy, it's actually necessary. Mm -hmm. Right. So in that sense, he says the, you know, the 
the meek monk stands next to the crusader, the virtuous mm-hmm. crusader. And the two are complete opposite people and both are Christian. Right. Mm-hmm. And he says the greatest example of this is the is the creed about Jesus Christ, that he was very God and very man. And very man. Yeah. Completely God. And yeah completely man right and that in the doctrine of the incarnation itself you have this like seeming paradox of how can he be very both well and we talked about that in the last po- i talked about that in the last podcast with Vern poitras that that even that that mystery that he is very man and very god also the mystery that god's nature and character is never changing but christ changes and turns to a man and then in Romans it says that he grew in stature that he even changes while he's a man we talked a little bit about this as like obviously Poitras said it was like a mystery uh it's one of the great Christian mysteries that you have to believe but that there's all of these things that seem contradictory um to maybe to a critic or just seem kind of out of place or, or paradoxical or mysterious uh in even the nature of Jesus and in the nature of the Trinity that it's uh yeah, there's just all, all these things all over the place. So I, do you want to do, do you have something to say about that or do you want to? Yeah, I just argues that Christian has a number of these paradoxes and yeah. that is actually, he argues that's what makes it sane. Yeah, right. So let's because start with there the are begin- il- there are illogical truths in the world and something mm-hmm. has to help you see them. And if you don't, your rationalism right. will take you in, really, in bad places, which goes back to chapter two, the maniac, right? Right, right. So, okay, I think we should just start at the beginning because you broke it down a little bit in our in your explanation of the overview of this chapter of chapter six. Mm-hmm. Um, that there was this this the very first paragraph of this chapter. He kind of discusses uh, he, he he discusses. I don't know how to say it exactly, but he says it looks just a little more mathematical and regular than it is. It's exact. It's exactitude is obvious, but it's inexactitude is hidden. It's wildness lies in wait that he discusses this idea that, like you said, if an alien came to earth and they saw a human being, they would say two eyes, you know, two ears, two feet, two legs, you know, two, two legs, two arms, two hands. Therefore it must have two hearts, but then he would be wrong on that. And how that's kind of the rational, logical mind is looking at what is out externally empirical and then making, then coming to a, what they would say as a rational conclusion that what is externally true must be internally true in this particular situation. And they would be wrong in that. Do you want to break that down a little bit more um, and explain why that's a significant thing? Because it's a little bit confusing when you read it. You're like, okay, this is a bit bit weird. Yeah. Right. I think part of this is, this is the logic of agnosticism and atheism is I -hmm. don't see God in all these things that I do. Therefore, God does not exist. Right. Like mm-hmm. these ideas that like, because certain things are logical to a certain extent, they become logical all the way through. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and what Cheshire is saying is he's saying, actually, it's not really like that. Nature isn't really like that. Right. It's, it's yeah. like, in one sense, it's ruthlessly logical, but it doesn't produce the logical ends that you would expect. And so right. like the, the, what seems to be a very reasonable reality in so many things vaguely in front of you and all the ways that you can easily see, you're like, oh, it must be logical like this all the way down. It must be predictable all the way down, right? Mm. So if I don't see God in all this stuff I'm doing up here, if I work my way yeah. down, I'm not going to find God, right? Mm. And what Chester says is, no, the logical stuff actually produces what seems like illogical truths when you work your way mm-hmm. down. And it doesn't right. 
in all kinds of ways. You think that the blade of grass is coming together and it's going to come to a point, but it doesn't actually come to a point, right? Yeah. Like it's a little curved at the end. It's not like a sword. Or you think that because there's two lungs, there have to be two hearts, but there actually isn't two hearts. There's just one or, or those sorts of things. And so his, what he says is he's like, as you look at life more and more closely, as you look at philosophy more and more closely, as you look at mm. nature more and more closely, you see this dynamic in which the exactitude is obvious, right? The stuff that you see has a certain exactitude to it. It functions the way it quote is supposed to. Mm-hmm. And you can like set your watch by it and you can like have all these mechanical things. But like when you get down to the more specific, you get down to the hidden places. There is an inexactitude that can easily hide from you. And if you don't realize that, you will extrapolate the exactitude everywhere and it will foul up your whole way of thinking about everything. And what Chesterton argues is the progressive agnostic of the late 1800s was exactly this sort of man. Hmm. He would have further argued the progressive of the 1920s was exactly this sort of man. And I think he would have argued the 1960s and the 1980s and the 2000s and the 2024s mm-hmm. are making you, the same you, mistake. It's a perennial mistake. Is And for people maybe to clarify what that type of person would be called today, maybe it would be called the agnostic. I don't know, but I – I, would it be called the naturalists? Like they believe in naturalism through and through that uh, the very Darwin, uh, Darwinian and um, imp- like very scientific mind. Is that what you would say? Or is that what we would call it, like a naturalist? Yeah, I mean, I think he would say it would hide behind some euphemism, right? Like okay. I can't remember if it's in chapter seven or chapter six that he talks about Nietzsche not being a strong philosopher because he just keeps using metaphors one of the ways in which we hide from our philosophies is by giving them euphemistic or good names. Yeah. Right. So we don't grapple with what abortion is because we call it abortion rather than infanticide, yeah. for example. Yeah. Um, and so by giving our names, um, our philosophies names that we think sound good, like naturalism or empiricism right. or stoicism or whatever. Um, What's it called when you kill an old as, person? Yeah. Euthanasia. Euthanasia. Doesn't that literally mean good death? Yeah. In, yeah, which is a Euth- lie. <laughs> euthanatos means good death, right, in Greek. Yeah. And so euthanasia means to have a good death. And I, I think like from the ancient world, and some people think of it that way, it's like, look, if I, kill, if, I, if I take a bunch of morphine and die right now, it's way better than letting this whole thing work out, right? right. Um, and I, I understand that view, right? I, I, but I think it is th- – there are certain times it's, where we label things when we're supposed to be arguing about them. Mm-hmm. And we, when we label them – we put the uh, we put the conclusion we want in the name. So yeah, is, for sure. Is giving somebody morphine so that they die or whatever, um, is that a euthanatos? Is that a good death? Mm-hmm. And so then mm-hmm. should we call it euthanasia, right? And so some people want to just na- – like for example, is progressive philosophy progressive? Right. right. Does it create progress, right? Um, it Well, is does conservatism conserve? Conserve, yeah. What should I was be just going to say – are the, the the way that people maybe could think about this is right, like through the political world right now, do yeah. the Democrats believe in democracy and do the Republicans believe in a republic? I, right. I think that – and I would say no <laughs> for right. either because, of them. <laughs> because one of the things people – a lot of people will not like about Chesterton is that fundamentally on the political level, he's a um, careful populist. He actually is a Democrat small d. And so when you get into chapter seven, he talks about how conservatism has to function to conserve. But then he says the reason why we all have to be liberals or progressives, so to speak, is because if you try to conserve, 
he he's like the only way to conserve every anything is by always being by, by always being vigilant about it. Mm-hmm. And so if like he's like if you take a white po- fence post and you put it in a field and you just you want to be conservative so you leave it alone, he says before you know it it'll be black because mm-hmm. nature will take its course. He says the only way you can actually conserve a good is by being constantly progressive about it. Like constantly mm-hmm. it, I, I would argue the better language is the reformer's language, reformed and always reforming. Yeah. It's yeah. A, it's, I don't a, like, it's a way it yeah. should be, but we have right. to be constantly reforming it or it stops yeah. being reformed. Right. Yeah. Pro- I, yeah. No, and go so ahead. progressivism, uh, there's a certain progress, Chesterton argues, is necessary for conservatism. Mm-hmm. But then in it, the first half of chapter seven, he argues there's a conservatism that is necessary to have a progressivism. You can't have progress without something that is stable by which to say, based on this, we progress. He's like, well, that has to be from another time. It has to be conserved. And only when you can conserve what should be conserved and transmitted can you progress. Otherwise, you're constantly progressing and changing your mind. You can't actually get anywhere. But then he says on the other side, but you have to have a progressivism to be conservative. That's chapter seven. We'll do that another time. Right. right. Well, I, and I don't, I think I agree with you. I do not like the progressive language because I think most people these days, I I, I love the reformed language, which I think is contradictory to the progressive language that a lot of people today would think progressivism we understand is today rooted in Marxism, which is the tearing down of something or the, or the complete re the destruction. So the fence to the progressive would get in the way and they would want to just tear it down. Whereas the fence to the reformist is not in the way, um, but it needs to be fixed. It needs to be touched up and and turned back to its old glory and and beauty. And I think that that's the difference. I that's, I just, I'm not trying to be nitpicky. I just think that people will look at the progressive versus the conservative. They'll be like, that just seems way too contradictory to even understand. I think the reformist language. I actually, I'm actually looking forward to chapter seven. We should focus on chapter yeah. six, but chapter seven is has a really interesting way of understanding why why we have to be both progressive and conservative. And I've been saying for years that I think do a you Christian mean reform. Do you, is that what you mean, though? Do you mean reformist or do you mean progressive? I, I don't understand. What he says what in chapter. Okay, so I, we should not stay on this long because this is chapter seven. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what he argues is is that <laughs> um, vigilance is necessary for conservation. You have to con- so, for example, yeah. okay. the way I conserve a good relationship with my wife is to be constantly pursuing her. Like my, my relationship with my wife just doesn't yeah, exist like gold, right? Like it's yeah. it's a living thing. And so for this living thing to be conserved, I have to be constantly inputting the right inputs so that it doesn't degrade, right? And so yeah. if I constantly am seeking my, to move my relationship with my wife forward, to be progressive mm-hmm. about it, then mm-hmm. only and then can I conserve that I have a good relationship with my wife and I can conserve that and then maybe transmit its dynamics to my children. Right. right. So only by being vigilant hmm. can I conserve. And so, Oh, and, you know, okay. Christian argues that that vigilance towards the good, that thing, some things need to change. We aren't living in utopia yeah. things. There are universal truths that should be better applied. We yeah, should yeah, be moving yeah, right. towards those in a quote revolutionary way. He means that we're a little different than the Marxists do, but we need to move towards it with like energy and vigilance. Well, that that is what progressivism should be, but it's because progressivism I, doesn't have the right thing, doesn't conserve the right truths, 
Yeah, it right, right, straight. right. Well, that's interesting. And we don't have to talk about this a lot, but that makes a lot more sense. And why talking about progressivism and conservatism as it relates to offense feels a lot different than we talk about as it relates to your wife or, or a person or a human being, because <laughs> the nature of the human is that the, the human is ever changing or maturing, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully well, maturing. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the ways Chesterton says it is, one of the ways he says it is, here, here's, here's something that's always progressive. Corruption is always progressing, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's the corruption of a fence post or of a marital relationship or of an economy, mm-hmm. corruption is always progressing. And so it like, it's like your garden is always growing weeds. So for right. your garden to progress, you have to be regressive towards weeds. Right. You have to be vigilant right. about them and pulling them out so that you can get progress. The, the, mm-hmm. re, the reason why progressivism is a bad name or a euphemistic name is because mm-hmm. we've never really had a good argument about what is progress. And what will make things progress? That's right. really the argument. And conservatives say it's one set of things, and progressives right. say it's another. And that's why calling progressives Marxists pisses them off and isn't totally correct. But it, it like, depends on what progressives not, you're talking to. I think it right. depends a lot on which ones you're talking to. Because I think that 99% of progressives under 40 are yeah. Marxists. Well, but like I, I was I'm, a couple months ago, I was talking to a woman on a plane. Like I was literally sitting next to this lady. She was from Dallas and she was a like super liberal, progressive Methodist lesbian who just got married. Wow. She had been married to a man, had a couple of kids later in life, became a lesbian, married this lady. And, and her, her quote wife was in the front of the plane. So she wasn't sitting in the next seat. Right. So she was just now we're talking. And we talked a bunch about church and stuff before it came out that I was not the sort of pastor she thought I was. And she wasn't the kind of Christian <laughs> I thought she was. Right. But then she once she, she started, it came out because she talked about how much she disliked Donald Trump. Right. And I didn't come to his defense or anything, but I was like, okay, well tell me about that. And she said, I just don't understand how anybody could not be a progressive. I mean, who would not want progress? And I was like, boom, there it is. Mm-hmm. How the euphemism takes a mind. Like literally the definition of the word tells them what they think it means. And then everything in their mind organizes around that instead of saying, no, no, it's got to go the other way. You have to start with what's right. What is the truth? Right. What would be the right order of things? How, what pursuits prudentially actually lead to that diminish corruption and build the good. And then if we did those things with discipline and vigilance, we could have some progress. Right. Well, this is what I was saying very about marriage. Thing. That's very helpful because it's it's your your in some ways your prog- let's just say your progression or reformed attitude, however we want to put that, is is in relationship to an ever changing being uh, like your wife. You know, mm-hmm. that, like she's never going to be the same uh, every right. day or every year. Um, but it is reliant on maintaining a the ethic of love. And so you're you're maintaining that ethic in in conservatism right. and applying it to an ever changing situation or ever changing person, right. and that's the difficulty. That's a really difficult type of dynamic. It's yeah. because the love is multifaceted for sure, but figuring out to what extent it's multifaceted. Where the parameters are, you know, because if my wife now is wanting to be, uh, you know, a lesbian, mm-hmm. well, okay, it's not, it's no longer my, my, my ethic of love doesn't then move to the, oh, yeah, she could be a lesbian, no problem. Yeah. Well, That's maybe not we could be polyamorous, anymore. we could add a woman exactly. into this. That, yeah. Right. Be like, Wait. So yeah. it's a, you have to, the first thing that happens is you have to know what love is. That's, you have to know what the biblical stance on love is. And then you have to learn how to apply that and to what extent you can apply it to the ever changing 
uh, nature of things around you, your family, yeah. your wife, your your friends, and your church right. type. Of yeah, I mean, if you want an unhappy wife, you can get it in two very predictable ways. One, her husband doesn't know what love is. Two, her husband doesn't know that tomorrow is different than yesterday. Like right. the husband who never changes and just assumes everything, mm-hmm. right? And doesn't think there's any entropy happening. Yeah. Unhappy wife or a man who You're doesn't like, know what love is and just it, like he's yeah. in the moment, but he has no stable understanding of what right. it means to love another person. Right. It's or that yeah, she's isn't shared. You're going to have an unhappy like, woman both ways. Right. Like I've had, you know, I've had two kids. I'm not the same as I was two years right. ago. Like things aren't the same. And that's literally happening in my marriage right now. It's like, yeah. We, and you've been married for like four kid. years, three years. No, no, dude. I've been married two years, literally yeah. a month ago. So I've been and married, got tw- our second I've been married 20 Right. So this may I'll be married 20. And I joke, I used to joke with frat guys who were like, dude, I don't think I could, people have probably heard me say this before. Dude, I don't think I could be monogamous land. Like I like just one woman. I'm like, look, I've been married to like five women, right? Like the (laughs) same woman keeps changing on me. Like, don't worry about it. Like you're going to, you're going to make love to five to 12 different women over the course of your marriage. Like it's going to be, it's going to change, you know? And they kind of look at me weird. Like, like what? And you're like, look, people keep, growing and changing and developing and they get worse or they get better or they like, or it's just different. Oh man. Do you want your wife to be like an idiot 20 year old for 40 years? Like, like, come on. Like you don't want to be an idiot 20 year old for 40 years. So like that's uh yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Let's get back to this though, because there's this section here that I do not fully, I understand it in some ways I don't fully understand. I'll read it until I feel like I want to stop so that we can have some context for what it is, but it's right after, um, it's not right after, but it's somewhat after uh, Chesterton talks about what we just discussed. Um, he's saying, I have alluded to an unmeaning phrase to the effect that such and such a creed cannot be believed in our age. Of course, anything can be believed in any age. But oddly enough, there really is a sense in which a creed, if it is believed at all, can be believed more fixedly in a complex society than in a simple one. If a man finds Christianity true in Birmingham, he has actually clearer reasons for faith than if he than if he had found it true in Mercia. For the more complicated, sorry, for the more complicated seems the coincidence, the less it can be a coincidence. If snowflakes fell in the shape, say, of the heart of Midlo, how do you even say that? Midlothian. Midlothian. Mm-hmm. Midlothian. It might be an accident, but if snowflakes fell in the exact shape of the maze at Hampton Court. I think one might call it a miracle. So, uh, I, I mean, I could keep reading, but that I I don't fully understand the point that he's trying to make here. Okay. And it might, okay. I don't know where Midlothian is. I don't know where, yeah. the, I don't know Birmingham, Alabama. I don't know. Okay. Where is, no, or is that in England? So, so Birmingham is a city in England. And okay, Mercia, I was like, it can't be t- and Mercia is one of the, one of the pre Britain kingdoms. So before England mm-hmm. was England, there were like, I don't remember how many kingdoms, maybe seven kingdoms, right? And one okay. of them was Mercia, right? So when he says compares Birmingham to Mercia, he's comparing like um uh whatever he wrote this to like I don't know, like 845 AD. <laughs> so he's he's like oh, he's like what do people bad. believe in like what do people believe in Anglo-Saxon England? Hmm. And what do people believe now? And he's like I actually think that in some ways um you can believe in something more exacting now. So, okay, the, the page before that, he kind of lays out what he's saying because you read that basically the illustration. Yeah, and he I says did, this. Yeah. Now, he says this actual insight and inspiration is best tested because th- this whole book is like testing philosophies, right? She's yeah. like, how do you test certain philosophies? Okay, 
Actual insight and inspiration is best tested by whether it guesses these hidden malformations or surprises. So, you know, but he says on the macro level, things are really logical, but then you get to the micro level and all of a sudden you're surprised by the wildness of reality. There are many sort of illogical and paradoxical, strange truths. He's like, so if you're looking for a philosophy that's truly insightful and truly inspirational, Mm -hmm. he's like, it's best tested by whether or not it guesses at these hidden malformations and surprises. This is actually the logic of science, right? Mm -hmm. Like when, when you say, okay, to a scientist, what philosophy is best? He's like the one that produces the best predictions, about stuff we haven't yet studied so that we know what scientific experiments to create and confirm. You have to have a philosophy that's giving you ideas. So it has to be a a philosophy that predicts well. That's one of the reasons why a lot of um, scientists say evolution should be accepted philosophically because it predicts things that we then test and then turn out to be the case. And when we had a creationist scientist on years ago here, he said the fundamental thing to demonstrate creation is that the science of creation has to predict things that we can then test scientifically. So this idea that like your philosophy tells you what the world is like before you can investigate and determine what the world is like, that it anticipates things before they happen. He's saying that's the measure. Okay. Real quick. So he's not, he's not, he's not talking about uh, a methodic view of science. He, no. He's talking about a, a presupposition a, or like a philosophical yeah. presupposition. Yeah. He's saying as, as a person, as you bump into these like sort of like paradoxical realities in life, what kind of philosophy had predicted them? Okay. That's okay. real inspiration. That's gotcha. real insight. And then he okay. explains this way. Now, this is exactly the claim that I have since come to propound for Christianity. Not merely that it deduces logical truths, but that when it suddenly becomes illogical – it has found, so to speak, an illogical truth. <laughs> it not only goes right about right about things, but it also goes wrong, if one may say so, exactly where things go wrong. Uh, its hmm. plan suits the secret irregularities and expects the unexpected. It is sure. simple about the simple truths, but it is stubborn about the subtle truths. Yeah. Right? That's his that argument. Was- it went over my when I was reading it the first time, and we we need to break this down more because it's still. I, I understand what you're saying. Do you want to keep breaking this down? Yeah. So he so he said in the next sentence he says, "We feel there is something odd in Christian theology. We shall generally find that there is something odd in the truth." So oh. I mean, one example of this that we talk about all the time on this podcast is sexuality, right? Yeah. Like the idea that either. We engage in unmitigated chastity or unmitigated monogamy and that it's binary and that it's restrictive, Mm -hmm. but then within each one, it's open in certain ways. That Mm -hmm. sounds just like, you know, you look at it and you're like, especially in your youth, you're like, that is just like so restrictive. Like that can't, right. But as I've grown through my life and I've, I've like walked with people through pain and difficulty and fears relative to companionship and, and split up marriages and split up homes and the degradation of society and the breakdown of the family and the effect on the human person mm-hmm. and the effect on masculinity and femininity and, and the rise of depression and the law and the effects of the broken human home and all those things. And the idea that we thought all of these institutions in society would make up for holes in the human family. And they just plainly don't make up for the holes in human families. And that families are sometimes awful, but they are the most predictable bond for caring for other people's and being cared for. Right. And you begin to understand that. So if you're like, wait, when I was 16 and I just wanted to have sex with somebody hot who would affirm me. Right. I thought Christianity was wrong. 
I thought it was a very odd thing it was saying. I thought that it had gotten off the truth of pursuing right. happiness. And right. now that I'm 46, I realized that it was truer than I ever dared to dream mm-hmm. when I was so younger. So the, odd, the oddness is for that 16-year-old is just, in a lot of ways, just a lack of wisdom and life experience. That, they, that they're, I don't want to just say li- that's not what it, it's a lack of truth. Is that the idea that, I, that your happiness is found in having as many sexual partners as you possibly can is is that's the oddity right. that's the irregular out, yeah yeah and it turns out the satisfaction is more subtle than that actually people are happier when they have one partner that they actually yeah. care about that they do a lot of stuff in life with when it's a comprehensive mm-hmm. relationship and so it's, is everybody else more happy when we do that and you wouldn't think that was the case when you were 15 right. or but it's crazy because it, there's all the statistics that i've seen about um married people have more sex like by far than non married. And they're like happier than, with than, it. Than, yeah. Yeah. The they're difference. happier with it and they, they have more sex than these people who are saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get married because I want to have all of these open sexual, par- like I want to be able to have as yeah. many sexual partners. It's yeah. like, well, you're not going to have as much sex, which sounds worse right. than, you right. know, having. Yeah. I mean, another sex. example is you're happier when you work than when mm-hmm. you're idle. You would think yeah. having freedom and leisure, right? And so, like, yeah. on one level, we could look at the world and say, look, freedom tends to be a good thing. Right. Yeah, As right. you look through a lot of things and how the world works, you're like, look, more freedom is good. Right. Mm. But then it's kind of like, well, when you look closer, it's actually freedom is good when virtue is present. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you're like, well, in certain cases, even when vir- some virtue is present, freedom is still not good. So divorce in Christianity would be an example of this. Like, why not give us freedom to choose when to get a divorce if we have a moderate amount of virtue? Because most people think they're mm. moderately good people, right? And the answer is, well, because the amount of virtue you need to decide whether or not you should get a divorce is way more than you think. And it's mm-hmm. precisely the kind of virtue you don't have when you're the sort of person who wants a divorce. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so because of that paradox, that sort of contradiction in the human person, mm-hmm. Christianity has this strange truth that everybody hates that actually mm-hmm. turns out to be necessary as we are finding this is- this is really important for, I think, for young people, but even anybody, um, and you're so doing just, a sermon yeah. series on technology. And it's important because I think a lot of, in an earlier podcast from probably a year or two ago, you had you talked about the demonic logic of why can't I? Like the people talk about, well, why can't I do this? Well, why can't I do that? You know, why can't I have sex outside of marriage? Why can't I um, not go to work? And you talked about how that that's a demonic logic that all the, the Christian... The assumption should be the true word of God, not the 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 small way out or whatever, the way out that Christians tried to find. It's interesting because I think that this is talking about that a little bit, that it's saying um, basically it's it's talking about the – well, maybe it's not specifically the why can't I Christianity, but it's talking about the the – unreasonable or oddities in Christianity is that a lot of uh, Christianity that a lot of young people, I think a lot of new Christians and young people mm-hmm. and immature Christians see as, as these, why can't I things? Well, what, yeah. why, why can't I just get a divorce? Why can't I do that? Why can't I just go on my phone all the time? It doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect me like it affects everybody else. It doesn't, you know, why can't I? And that's, and yeah. I think, yeah, like Chesterton's yeah, think, saying, you don't start is- with why can't I? You start with the virtue. You start with the truth, and then you then you you accept the oddity in it, and then you allow that oddity to grow into the fruit that it becomes, essentially, right? Yeah, yeah, sort of. Yeah, I, I think that that connects. I think later on in this chapter when he talks about things being beside each other, mm-hmm. so that we are free in Christ and the slaves <clears throat> of God. 
right? For that, sure. that like would you to yeah, have a right, good ethic, right. you have to have these insane voluptuous virtues or truths <laughs> side by side. And so like, should you be sexually free? Yes. You need to express incredible sexual freedom. And should mm-hmm. you be monogamous and a slave sexually to one other person possessing mm-hmm. them and being possessed? Yes. Both of those things are true. Um, mm-hmm. And if you do both of them, then you will have the ultimate of what sex is supposed to be. Right. And you know, work is similar. Like you're meant to work and to rest. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you work like you should and you rest like you should, the two are side by side, not mixed together, but separate and held apart in in their proper paradox and therefore their proper proportion, then you will work well and rest well and be very healthy. So I get what you're saying there. I think it's true. But I wonder when you say that there's the paradox of you need to be sexually free and then you also need to be in a monogamous marriage in in which you oh weird did you see all those balloons just go up on my screen yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know why it did that that's if if i put up a two or one or oh wow dude it just does those things i did not know that it did that i'm recording the video so that'll be cool um there's like all these oh. balloons that just came up on my screen uh when i did like a one or a two um anyways i'll get yeah. back that was crazy that's um the the idea that so the way that I always thought about that that dynamic though is that not that it was paradoxical maybe I'm wrong about this but that it is um, that it's it's not paradoxical but that the sexual freedom is restrained within the monogamous marriage that that those two things are working hand in hand but I know that later he talks about how those two things that that you can't cross contaminate the two paradoxes that you need to yeah. hold them both in separate hands right. but I feel like those go together. Right. But I, but, but, but if you like, if you take only the ethic of constraint, you're constrained just to your wife, but then you might wildly constrain yourself in your sexual expression with your wife in ways that maybe you shouldn't. Right. And so you come together with your wife, but it lacks the real emotional and functional freedom in which sure. to enjoy your wife. Right. And right. so, so like there has to be a certain kind of freedom and by freedom here, I don't mean degradation and like, um, dysfunction like i'm not saying like that anything anybody wants to do sexually is good what i'm saying is is like there has to be an openness and a freedom and an expression and a care and like in order for it to be what it's meant to be within the other so here's the point i think chesterton is making kind of in a in a different way a lot of christians now feel like you should take the the doctrines in christianity that people don't like and kind of put them to the side yeah. And take like some of the doctrines that you feel like maybe are the strongest argument for God's existence in Christian faith and really push those. And then if people believe in Jesus, in the end, they might come around to the other ones if they learn them slowly. So, for example, I remember listening to a talk by a philosopher named D- Doug Guyvet, who's a good apologist, a person I really liked. And he said he was talking about the problem of evil. And he said, and he said look, a lot of people struggle with the idea that God is good evil exists and that God is loving, that those three things are all true at the same time. He said, however, one of the ways to think through something is you might have a reason against it, but you might have another reason for it. And the two might not cancel each other out, but they might balance each other. For example, he said, I believe that the Kalam cosmological argument is a good argument for God's existence. Why is there something, if something begins to exist, it has a sufficient cause for its existence. We know now scientifically the universe began to exist. It needs a sufficient right. And you can, so you believe that there's like something all powerful, something all capable and so on. And he's like, that, that argument I think is successful in saying that I should believe in a God. He said, so I believe in a God. I believe in God partly on the basis of that, even if 
all things being told, the argument for uh, the arguments against God because of suffering still remains relatively strong. And so you could argue that you should push the, our cosmological argument, other arguments like it, and seek to get somebody to look away from the problem of suffering. Chesterton mm-hmm. is saying exactly the opposite. He's saying exactly the doctrines about of Christianity that you hate the most, those are the ones that should cause you to believe in it. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's a sexual ethic and it's anti-divorce and that it's, you should go to church and that like you should believe mm-hmm. in like Jesus was both God and man and like all yeah. these like doctrines and ethics, the very ones you hate the most are literally the ones you need the most and are the very reason you should believe in Christian faith. That's what Chesterton is implicitly arguing mm-hmm. and in some places in the book explicitly arguing. Yeah, and I, I think I agree with with Chesterton's view on that because I think that – well, I do think that a lot of Christians – kind of do choose to just ignore the things that they don't like about Christianity. But I think what they end up doing and ignoring those things is they'll say, oh, I believe in Jesus, but I, I quote, you hear this a lot. It, they say that they struggle, I struggle with the homosexuality thing, or I struggle with not watching porn, or I struggle with, with um, greed, which means I don't agree with the Bible's ethic on that. It doesn't, yeah. you don't struggle with these things. Like, what do you yeah. mean you struggle with greed? Like, do you give money or not? That's the question. It's not, a, it's not a struggle. Yeah. It's not like, oh, like I'm shaking <laughs> Like when I give my money to the church or something like I'm in a bit. No, that's not what. And they try to make it sound like they're struggling with this thing. Um, and that struggle I've seen for a lot of people that I know that these sorts of quote unquote struggles last 10, 20, 30 years. And what it actually ends up being is I don't believe that that ethic is actually true. And I'm going to just tell everybody that I struggle with it. So it looks like I'm struggling with my faith and becoming more sanctified. But in reality, I'm stuck in this unbelief. And I think that if you come to the faith, understanding and believing in these things that you think are, are irrational and unbelievable, if you choose to believe those things and choose to engage with those things, you are in a much better place. And you're probably more of a true Christian than the person who comes to the faith th- saying, well, I, I like Jesus as my friend, but I don't like him as my Lord. And that I'm not going to listen to all of his, his mm-hmm. what he tells me to do. I, I mean, I'm seeing this all the time with young yeah. people. Like well, they, yeah, they it's struggle imp- it's with imp- everything. It's important to recognize theologically that a Jesus who isn't Lord isn't a savior. Yeah. Right. It's, it is his divinity and, and his assumption of humanity and his assumption of humanity that makes him a sufficient propitiation for our sins. If he's right. not God and thus Lord, he's mm-hmm. not a savior. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that you can separate those two is just not good thinking. Well, One of the things I said he's years not ago. he's savior, he's not your friend too, right? Like he can't be your friend if he's not your savior and your Lord. That gets a little bit more complicated because what because God does call Ab- calls Abraham his a friend. Abraham was a friend to God. That word friendship language is used, and but it's used within a certain context that some people don't understand. Well, within the friend, context, friend in the context of John's gospel means there's a difference between a servant who a master tells them what to do, but none of the reasons why they're doing it. Yes. They're not right. in the inner circle of the purpose. And so they're That's, not really doing it as teammates, yeah. as like fellow travelers. And Jesus mm-hmm. says to his disciples, I've made you, I've called you friends because a servant doesn't know his master's business. When I told you my business, what I'm doing, what I care about, why mm-hmm. I'm doing this, I made you friends. That doesn't yeah. mean they have authority over Jesus in any way, no. right? He's still the leader and he still is the Lord. But when he calls him into his purposes, he says, you've become my friends. Yeah, that because they have a fuller understanding of the purpose. Correct. Yeah, that makes Correct, sense. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's what I mean. Just the word follower of Jesus, right? The word follower can mean like on YouTube or like on Facebook, or it (laughs) can mean disciple or like I follow my sergeant into war. Mm -hmm. I I follow the sergeant or I follow, you know, like Alyssa Milano. Those, that word follow has a huge range. And in Christianity, it does not have a huge range. It has an extremely narrow range. It's the, I follow my sergeant into battle meaning. Yeah. That's why it's connected with the word disciple. But you, you know that most people don't believe in the narrow range of that word or in the narrow range of the word friendship. They, they, yeah. when these words are used that, ambiguously, that's why you, right? That's why I say, help. that's why I say regularly, I hate the phrase, I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I don't use it. It virtually never comes out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. And I don't like try to punish people because there's a lot of people that come from other churches in Madison or that's in the country say, right? that that's, it's like, they don't say anything else. And I think that is actually bad. <laughs> It's horrible. I think you can say follower of Jesus or follower of Christ if you say other things too. If you Dude. say, I belong to Jesus, Jesus mm-hmm. is my king. I am Christ's disciple, right? right? Jesus is my Lord and savior. Like if you mm-hmm. say all of that stuff and sometimes you say, I'm a follower of Jesus because mm-hmm. that's what the context indicates, that's fine. But when you say that and nothing else, I think that it becomes, it creates a, it, it, like your only description is ambiguous. Well, I do. Right, I like, think that it's. I right, just think it's, whenever it's you describe something important and you're only ex- right. Well, I mean, I, I don't know who knows this, but like the, that fr- that phrase, "follower of Christ" or "follower of Jesus," it became popular again in the late 1990s because of the Bosnian Herzegovina War. Right, like what happened was that a bunch of quote Christians in name in the Balkans engaged in genocide against of people who are Muslim in name only, who are nominal Muslims. And so when missionaries went in to seek to reach these Muslim peoples, if they said, I'm a Christian, right, they meant a Serbian or a Bosnian Christian or a Serbian, I think Serbian Hmm. Christian. And that meant we're the people who literally killed all of you. Hmm. And so they had to connect themselves to Jesus in a way that didn't call themselves Christians because the Serbians had killed the Bosnians, right? Right, So if you were a missionary to Bosnia, you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, not I'm a Christian. Right. Right. That's why that was invented. It was used in modern seeker church Christianity to differentiate yourself from other people who call themselves Christians. Now, on one level, you can understand that there are a lot of like fundamentalist Christians or angry Christians or legalistic Christians or moralistic Christians, and they have really boring church and people have been to those boring churches. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you can understand why some churches like on their sign, it says a new way to do church. Which yeah, basically right. says Freaking our church isn't like that. other churches. We're not like those other people, which in yeah. a way you're, you're trying to attract people, which in one sense is good. You're also disassociating yourself from the rest of the body of Christ, which I think is philosophically <laughs> and morally abhorrent. And so uh, as much yeah, as I have dude. always wanted to do that and be like, well, you guys, high point's so different. Yeah. We're different than all those other churches. And, and like, I don't preach like yeah. those moralistic fundamentalists. The thing is all those other churches for the most part are part of the body of Christ. They are my brothers and sisters in Christ. The problem right. is I'm embarrassed of them. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't necessarily, I am more embarrassed of the, of the liberal licensing church than I am of the, what we want to call fundamentalist evangelical church that people oftentimes, well, no, uh, they don't categorize correctly. That's not Dude. how you, that's not, that's not what you really think, because here's the thing. You don't think that those liberal churches are Christians. Correct. So you that's don't why think I'm embarrassed that they are your, 
but they're not yeah. your brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed is, of them in the sense that they that they think that they're Christians and they're diluting and and, and perverting the yeah. the the uh, the right. The, what, they, what is it? What does Truman call it? The imagination, the the cultural right. imagination, cultural they're, imaginary. They're, yeah, yeah, cultural what, imaginary. Yeah. Charles Taylor called it, and that Truman yeah. repopulized. Yeah, you repopulized. Yeah, yeah, but like. But so that's not how I look at it, right? Like if if the if liberal churches that were liberal enough that they don't believe the gospel, those mm-hmm. aren't my brothers and sisters that embarrass me. They're my enemies. Mm-hmm. They're preaching right. a false gospel. They're not yeah. Christians, and they are my enemies. Yeah. And so I don't have any problem with saying we're not like them. I'll say right. we're not like liberal Methodists, and that doesn't bother me at all. The problem <laughs> is, is that that annoying Baptist church that still has those like throne like looking chairs on their stage with orange carpet. And that like are had these super irrelevant worship services. A lot of those people are Christians and they do love God Correct. and they're trying to serve him. Mm -hmm. And my emotional sophistication is embarrassed that they're part of my family. And so I am highly motivated to be like, we're not like them. And if my job that, that Christ has given me is to make new disciples too, I'm supposed to reach these secular people in Madison differentiating myself in order to reach these other people whose sense of sophistication is even more sensitive than mine seems absolutely necessary. And so I have cool church and I call myself a follower of Christ. The problem is for me is structurally, I just, I think what happens is then your church moves away from the other churches and it's kind of out there by itself trying to reach people. And I just struggle with that being Jesus vision. And so I I mean, and I, I think, think in our actually, culture, it creates worldly, it tends to create worldly Christians unless once you get inside, see, there's this guy that came to our church about two years ago. No, not two years ago, like five years ago. And one of his siblings, like his brother was like a main worship leader at Joel Olstein's church. Okay. So you talk about like seeker sensitive churches who are where people are saying stuff you think they want to hear. Joel he Olstein came, he was, like, he was, he was looking for the ticket booth when he came, right? He was trying oh, to man. buy tickets to the service, yeah. Dude, like, I mean, this guy, yeah. you're kind of like, okay, if anybody wears the crown of seeker sensitivity and telling you what you want to hear, it's Joel Osteen, okay? Oh, but yeah. I was talking with this guy, and he was like, look, here's the thing you got to understand about Lakeview or whatever the church's name is, right? He's like, they still have the exact same midweek Bible study they've always had, where they go after you with expositional Bible teaching. He's like, he's like, what you see is the Sunday morning, and they literally have just decided Sunday morning is about reaching people, and that's all they do. And it is totally psychological preaching, what you want to hear based on how you feel coming in the door. He's like, but listen, the entire rest of the, of the model of that church is like Baptist discipleship Christianity. Now you could argue that the money has corrupted Olstein, and like I'm open. He's not my servant. So he's not my man to judge. I can just say what he does and whether or not I think that seems healthy for the church. I don't like the stuff I see. I really don't like the stuff I see. Yeah, but dude, having, I got hearing a that about the inside, but I, but I know other churches that are like kind of follow of Christ churches where I see the fruit of people who've been discipled in that church for years. Mm-hmm. And they do seem to have this ambiguity, this worldliness, the every doctor they don't like, they say they struggle with, which means they deny. <laughs> yeah. and, right. and, I, and I look at that church and I go, okay, Listen, if you're going to have a worldly bait, you have to have a switch. When I, when I was at Lynn Haven, we were, we were a secret yeah, church. Yeah, dude. Dude, that's but I okay. Used to so say, I used to say with our small groups, we are a bait and switch mm-hmm. church. But I, Nick, I know- Everybody who comes here has to realize that there's a moment where they have to realize that Jesus is Lord. And that, that is how you seek happiness in him. 
you you can't <clears throat> so my issue with all of this is that one it assumes way too much that people that the, my issue with with secret sensitive sensitive churches and method methodologies that are primarily focused on getting people in the door is that it assumes way too much about the nature of, of human beings and it assumes too much about the psychological um, place in which that person that they're seeking is at as they come to the door it assumes it assumes this extra extra biblical knowledge on what people are quote unquote needing to hear that is wildly outside the bounds in which Christ spoke and the New Testament apostles spoke um, as it related to evangelism and their their methods in evangelizing to other people. So so and then we also I think they're also engaging in this I don't know if what if this isn't the right terminology, but like a fallacy of compartmentalization and that you can preach something from the pulpit that's completely psychological and completely uh, self-helpy, you know, 10, 10 steps to get your life uh, better. That is completely, totally anti-biblical. I mean, Olstein is not preaching the Bible. He is not preaching Jesus and he is not preaching anything close to what Jesus would preach. And it's not even a question. Nobody's, nobody's questioning whether or not his stuff is biblical or not anymore because everybody knows it's not. So for me, I look at that and I say, okay, their Wednesday, this guy who says that they have a Wednesday night Bible study that seems to be expositional, I would say there's about 0% chance that, that that can be true because you're compartmentalizing the the fundamental teachings of the church on Sunday from the very top senior pastor of the church that's approved by the elders that's going out into the, like these, this message is going out on Sundays to, I don't know how many people listen. I mean, maybe it's gone down over the years, but at one point, maybe hundreds of thousands, millions, I don't know. And you're saying that if they're going to approve that sort of psychological anti-biblical teaching, and then and then three days later, they're going to be doing expositional Bible study you're engaging in this fallacy of compartmentalization. Nobody does that, that you either believe in the expositional Baptist teaching of what, of the Bible, or you believe in the psychological teaching of Joel Osteen. You, those two things are not, one of them is going to contaminate the other and destroy the other thing because they're diametrically opposed. So the, the, the issue that I run into is that I just don't think that that person that you talk to at high point and, you know, don't know this guy, actually has a good grasp on what's probably happening at that church because the chances that 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 Joel Osteen's church is the one church in America who can engage in heretical teaching on Sunday and expositional teaching on Wednesday is uh like zero percent like there's no way that that can actually happen I I can't I that's that's a all right, I'm going to use this as sense. an opportunity to transition back to orthodoxy. There's this sure. it, it, close to what we read before. It says something it says this. Um the compilation the complication of our modern world proves the truth of the creed more perfectly than any of the plain problems of the ages of faith. And then he says this, this is why the faith has the elaboration of doctrines and details, which so much distresses those who admire Christianity without believing in it. When okay. once one believes in a creed, one is proud of its complexities as scientists sure. are proud of the complexities of science. It shows how rich it is in its discoveries. If it is right at all, it is a compliment to say that it is elaborately right. A stick might fit in a hole or a stone a hollow by accident, but a key and a lock are both complex. Mm. And if a key fits a lock, 
you know it is the right key. So what Chesterton is arguing there is he's saying the reason why the complexities of Christian doctrine and faith are necessary and why you need to believe them all together, hence believe in orthodoxy, the title of the book, is because they fit reality in a way you wouldn't have expected. And the real Christian, the orthodox Christian, is proud of that. He or she loves the complexities of the Christian faith, and that's also why he or she loves to study the complexities of the scripture and Christian theology and faith and ethics. Because as you understand its subtleties, its inner dynamic, its inner workings, its ethics and rules and functions, the more fascinating it is and the more true it proves itself, right? Because it's not like a rock that fits in a hole. Any number of rocks could fit in that hole. It's like a key that unlocks a very complicated lock, the lock of humanity and progress and truth and so on. And so because of that, Chesterton is saying, he's saying um, the fact that Christianity is strangely intricate in odd places, in ways that like people who want to, quote, admire Jesus for being a good moral teacher – Right. They 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 want to admire Christianity without believing in it, which is, which is some of these some of the Christians that I think you're upset by people who, who say they're Christians, but when it comes to most of the specifics of Christianity, yeah. they admire it without believing it. They admire Christ without right. believing in Christianity. They, and yeah. what Chesterton says is that is not Christianity, and that yeah, is not sure. orthodoxy. And he said the reason he's become a believer in orthodoxy. Yeah. Is because orthodoxy is a key that fits the lock of real life. And, and this is this yeah. and shallow yeah. belief and, and shallow admiration of Jesus that goes along with the philosophy of the time that key opens nothing. The, the, so this is the point that I'm making. And I, th- I think that, that he's right. And I think that uh, Carl Truman's new book is, a, is exactly about this. And, and J.I. Packer talked a lot about, he, he was a stickler on catechizing children. He thought that the church had completely gone totally astray because the Protestants weren't catechizing their children anymore. He was like, you guys are morons for not catechizing your kids. Um, and I agree with him because because the specificities of Christians, or of, uh, the specificities of the Christian doctrine, those are the things that most people choose. They uh, choose whether or not they believe on Christianity. They believe in Christianity on. So, sorry, that may make sense. The specificities of Christianity, the specificities of the Christian doctrine are the things that get people caught up. They have to make decisions on whether or not they're going to choose to believe in the teaching of what Jesus literally said, rather than on the general ambiguity of the general overview message of who Jesus was. And those are two completely different things, because you can look at Jesus and say, oh, he sacrificed for his friends. He was a really good guy. But then you, and you could say, oh, I believe in that Jesus. Right. But, but then you look at Jesus saying, um, you know, it'd be better if you tied a millstone around your neck than to lead a child astray. And what the implications of that is like, and throw yourself into a lake. Okay. So what is he saying about teachers in the public school? What is he saying about those people? Well, those are the specificities that a lot of people don't ever want to talk about because they don't want to deal with the real things that Jesus is telling people, the intense, hardcore stuff. And I think that that's exactly to the point that, that I, and, and I think what's been leading me personally towards I can't I I find myself so um like stuck not stuck I find myself so repulsive towards uh non-denominational evangelical churches because instead of specifying the intricacies of doctrine they continue to throw their general ambigu- ambiguous 10 doctrines you know their their 10 we believe these five things about the bible let's look at 
we're talking about 66 books. So we're talking about, you know, the most studied book in the, in human history. And, you know, and you've got 10 things that you believe about it. I mean, I that's think, such I think a- it depends. I think it depends on the ecclesiology of that church, like how it's functioning. Like, cause I think if you have a church that has like 13 public statements and then it's preaching is very milk and toast, like emotional kind of vaguely biblical kind of preaching, then I think, yeah. I think no, because I don't. This is where I don't agree with you. I think that the preaching wait, is wait, dependent me, on ha, the doctrine. Let me let me finish my thought just briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, the history of Protestantism um, has had two components. One has included catechesis, like taking people yeah. through a system systematic study of things. The second mm-hmm. is is that post Calvin, particularly, the idea of the expositional work of the pastor was fundamental. Yeah. That the that the catechism book was the Bible. And that we were to read the Bible under the exposition of the preacher, mm-hmm. and the and the preaching was supposed to be substantial, so that the yeah. way Alistair Begg said it was, people would be able to read their Bibles, and every time they read it, they would know what doctrines correlated mm-hmm. with each of the things that they read, so that mm-hmm. the Bible itself became the catechesis book of the church. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So in no, churches in which saying, yeah. there's strong ministries of expositional preaching over years. The two thirds of the worship service is catechesis, um, right? In in churches where the preaching is milk toast, laugh, emotion, story, very little exposition, very little doctrine. Yeah, that's not true. And the question I is, well, then where are people catechized? And the answer is often nowhere systematically. Yeah, I just don't think. I actually just I don't agree with that because I think that the very people, one of the churches that came out of the Calvin. So the Baptist Church, essentially fairly Calvinist, or at least historically fairly Calvinist, and their there their has view, always been a wing of the Baptist Church that was Calvinist. Generally speaking, though, there's been a lot of like Armenian Baptists, and that was sure, a, sure, sure, yeah. But, but but the Calvinist Reformation that, in my American Baptist churches has been very recent, like in in my lifetime. Yeah, but but my issue with okay, so then let's look at the um, so. Okay, so what you just – the reason why I don't think that what you just said actually practically worked, works itself out is because – and I've been wrestling with this and trying to figure this out, the idea that like the relationship between the, the communal or fellowship aspect of Christianity and the individual personal conviction of Christianity growing up in Protestant – you know, evangelical churches, the, the emphasis is high on personal conviction. And I, you know, I've got that down. Everybody has that down who, who's grown up in those types of churches. But the issue that I run into is that there's no fellowship aspect with it. And there's no, there is a, there's a high view of personal conviction and a low view of, of, uh, personal submission to biblical authority, to the authoritative structures within the church. So somebody can flippantly leave a church if they don't like the worship service, okay? Um, and that, and they feel no conviction for that at all, which I think is completely unbiblical. I think if you're going to leave a church, it needs to be for severe heretical doc- doctrinal issues um, because that church has chosen to uh, leave the Orthodox, leave Christian Orthodoxy in some capacity. So I think that there's more weight to that. But I think Christians are leaving. Like there was a church that I knew in Minneapolis, and this happened all over the country. They left their church and planted a new one because the church was requiring them to wear masks. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's not happening in Catholicism. That's not happening in Eastern Orthodoxy. It's not happening in Anglicanism. Yes, they have their own issues. But because their churches aren't primarily um, contingent and built upon the cult of personality that the 
pastor kind of engages in and kind of creates, they are built on the catechisms, what, like the Westminster Shorter, Westminster Longer, the Heidelberg Catechism. They have all these doctrines that the clergy must submit to so that it, it, it keeps the structure rather than keeps the pastor. And that's a, that's a difference in, in, in ideology as, as we look at church structure and longevity. And I would argue, <laughs> I don't think, actually, there's no other argument that the longevity of the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church proves, proves at the very least that that structural foundation um, develops churches that are that are going to last longer. Pro- low church Protestant churches we know don't last every 50 years. It's like, I don't know what the exact, uh, the exact Yeah, but Andy, nobody are. is losing their youth faster than those high churches. No one. They are not. What do you mean by youth. that? What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Most of the growth happening in Orthodox Roman Catholic churches and high churches like that are people leaving evangelicalism to go to them. They're people who Correct. are already Christians who want something more structured and richer. Those communions themselves are not retaining their their children their children are leaving faster than even what's happening in the country that's not true that i'm literally doing a podcast next week with a guy who's writing a book on this issue there are more young millennials and gen zers leaving protestantism for catholicism than the other way that's not like that's not what i'm saying that's not what I'm saying. What are you saying? I'm saying, I'm saying what's happening is people are leaving orthodoxy and Catholicism and Anglicanism for secularism. Then what's happened is evangelical churches who focus on, quote, reaching people, they reach the secular people, like people who are not Christians or are going to even worse churches. Oh, they come I into see. evangelical church. The evangelical churches proves too milk and toast. It's enough for them to start, but it's not for not enough for them to feast on a deeper life. So they look for more. When they look right. for more, they end okay. up moving towards Orthodox and Catholic churches. So the quote evangelism, the moving to the Roman Catholic churches are people who are already Christians, yeah. who are already reading the Bible, who are already believing in Jesus. And then they like, well, what's a richer form? What's a deeper spirituality? Right. And some of those, some of those people, who don't know their Protestantism very well are in some cases they do. In some cases they don't are moving to Catholicism and Orthodox. And I, yes, I get what you're saying. And I'm making the argument that those churches who are focused on evangelism in that way, aren't actually biblical churches, because if your theology and your evangelism isn't producing a deep, rich Christian godliness, then there's something wrong in your evangelistic model. And I think the reason they're leaving is because they're recognizing. I have been been milk and toast Protestant my whole life. And I have never found that to be the case if I was interested in actually doing the things. The thing is, is those these Protestants, they don't have quiet times. They don't read their Bible on their own. They don't pray. They don't yeah, mean wh- fellowship do you think that, relationships. Why, why do you think they that they're not do doing that? They don't do evangelical Protestantism. Why do you? No. Well, they don't. <laughs> no, they are doing evangelical Protestantism because evangelical The vast majority Pro- of Roman Catholics don't do Catholicism. The vast no, no, majority no, of Orthodox on. Christians don't I do think Orthodoxy. I think there's there's conflation because I'm saying what I'm saying is that the type of Christianity that low church evangelicalism produces is a type of Christianity that rewards personal conviction on and I'm not saying historical evangelical Protestantism. I'm saying that what Patrick Deneen argued for as it relates to politics and liberalism is that liberalism killed itself because liberalism was the desire to do whatever I want whenever I want is the same argument that I'm making against Protestantism is that 
Luther and Calvin and all these guys are part of the Reformation were trying to reform the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church didn't reform in the time period that they wanted them to. Now, there's arguments that they did reform within 100 years. A lot of those issues that that you know they weren't making people pay for their for, for people a, to get a out lot of, of those purgatory. Issues, they still haven't resolved more than 500 years later. It depends on what type of uh, what type of uh, weight you want to put on those issues, though. Because if I'm looking at like transubstantiation or what Luther called consubstantiation, and I look at like the differences in what we believe about the bread and the body or the nature of race continuum or the Christ church inter- interconnection. And I look at those theological issues and I say to myself, okay, what sort of weight do I want to put on those compared to the countless of American evangelical churches that are apostatizing to whether or not you can be a gay Christian or a trans Christian. I look at myself, I look at the, I look at the issue. I mean, it's count. I mean, dude, the yeah, biggest Andy, church, the biggest Andy, evangelical church you, in America is, is Andy Stanley's church literally thinks that you can be a gay Christian side a gay Christianity and live in homosexuality. They are setting the tone for Christian for, for the evangelical church. And the, what Andy and Stanley I, said is almost exactly the same thing that Pope that the Pope Francis said. just said. I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm saying that the, that the Pope, but there's an argument within Catholicism is that a lot of the Catholics don't believe that that's true doctrine. They just think that the Pope is flippantly flying, saying something off the handle. But yeah, well, they and don't the Pope believe had that to everything. Say, the Pope literally just said, "This isn't dogma." But this is how I like to think of like somebody asked exactly. about hell but recently. The, but, no, he's I like, know. "This isn't dogma, but I like to think of hell as empty." But the Pope isn't the Pope isn't always infallible. Is what I'm saying is that the Protestants think that if the Pope I says something, not. well, he's not. No, they pro- don't believe but, uh, that. They don't Catholics, believe the Catholics don't believe that the Pope is always infallible. Nobody believes. No, that. but they believe that he's always to be taken seriously as the great Pater, the Father. <laughs> I know. I know I'm not I but he's not infallible. And the issue with the evangelical church is that is that the pastor is always infallible in function, oh, that not is, in theology, Nick, in, func- no. in function. Dude. Oh, my gosh. How many people? I can't oh, tell you how many I people. Wish I wish you could that- be me for a day to see how Bro. many people behave like I'm infallible. Nick, that I, uh, we don't do you need think to get into the, we do don't you need to get into the personal. Church, is it, when you say evangelical church, that kind of, what, do you, I'm assuming you include high point in that. Yes, the primary example that I have for this is my personal experience with High Point. But I don't want to get into the – because I don't want to do like a – like um, I'm trying to talk about this more conceptually or abstract because I don't know if we should talk about that specifically on this podcast. I feel like we that would like be something that – they're talking that, about G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. Well, I think it has to do with orthodoxy. That's what I'm <laughs> saying is that this is the, – the reason people are leaving the evangelical church is because there's a lack of orthodoxy. And they're seeing the lack of of doctrinal structure, even if the Catholic theology, the Catholic catechism is, is wrong on twelve different fronts. They still have a catechism, and people want there to be a Protestants, doc- have, Protestants have all kinds of catechisms. That's the problem, Nick. There's forty different catechisms compared there's to no one. There's no evidence. There's no evidence that Catholics read their catechisms any more than Protestants. I'm do. not saying there's evidence. I'm saying people are leaving. I was a Roman Catholic who went through catechism. And I learned nothing. Okay, Okay, listen. And it was not because I didn't pay attention. I was interested in religion. Okay. It was just taught by lay people who didn't know anything. And I was shown videos of people worshiping Mary in Eastern Europe and not taught the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. Listen. Other than that chastity was beneficial. 
I'm not, this is why I can't, you can't talk to Gen Xers about Catholicism because there's so much personal, emotional stuff. I'm just saying, I'm, no, I'm diagnosing like the problem. Catholics. No, listen, I, listen, I'm diagnosing the problem. I'm saying in the Protestant church, there's 50 catechisms. Okay. Somebody like me who has grown up in this time period where everything is freaking nuts and yeah, everybody's divorced like and nothing makes any sense. They're like the main ones. And they say basically the exact no, same thing. No, there's not two or three because the issue is that every single non-denominational church that you walk into has slightly different doctrinal stances on different things. We have side A and side B gay Christianity. There are two sides to to the heresy of gay Christianity. It, there's there is so many doctrinal differences within the evangelical church and the Protestant church at large that you look at the Protestant church as a young person and that's why they're leaving the Protestant church and they say how can I possibly make a decision here? There's a 50,000 different ones and I don't have all of the historical understanding and the theological doctrinal understanding of what these all actually mean. I would rather go to a church that have la- has lasted a thousand years or 500 years and maybe they're wrong i think catholicism is wrong you do go to a church that has lasted two thousand years no, i no, no. preach the same christianity as the apostles <laughs> so does it catholics would, would say argue, the same thing why would i believe no, you and not believe the don't. church that's been around for 500 years they would argue that they preach the same gospel that i've never met a catholic who doesn't say we preach the same gospel as paul preached they no, all say everybody says this, that. the statement that i just said was not a statement about people's perspectives. What I'm saying is I know I read the apostles and the early fathers and I preach that message. And I don't, I don't think I have to abide by what Aquinas says or what Vatican II says. I am not tied up by the history of the Roman Catholic magisterium, which has gone desperately wrong. Nick, you're you're proving my point though, because why should, why should I trust you? This is, an, this is a question of trust. Why should I trust that Nick Gibson, the pastor of High Point Church in Madison, Wisconsin, is following Paul and the apostles better than a church who has been around for a thousand years say that they're following it? It is a question of perspective. Because yeah. You, and I, Nick, I agree with you. I think that yeah, you have a better, a better the, theology. We're having the deed of worms right now. You're Charles, well, right? And John, what's his name? And I'm going to be Luther. And I'm going to be like, look... I understand you're going to say to me, Luther, how can you alone be right? Right. All the councils stand against you. All the books stand against you. All the magisterium stands against you. And he says to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand because I can do no other. So help me God. Right. Like there is a sense in which Protestantism was not just built on democratic liberalism it was built on conscience <laughs> and and what that jack a, packer would say after, is after your conscience true. can be wrong dude your conscience uh, protestant conscience is wrong all the time because they build up these behemoth organizations that have five thousand people in them and now they're more focused when I stand, on getting when I people stand in the before door. jesus the christ when i stand before jesus the christ i cannot hide in the wisdom of the magisterium I am going to be judged myself based in on what some I believe and what I did. You're right? also going to be judged to- as the, the the first thing that Christ does in Revelation is judge the churches for their communal relationship to the biblical doctrine. So there's two things that are going to happen. But not, You're but going not to be judged individually. No, but not as an eternal judgment. That was a yeah, temporal judgment of those churches in that time. That that John okay, was well, saying that, the, that the church in Perga in 54 AD had been faithful, but it was losing its grip on its faith. And so you that believe church that would cease to literal, exist as a church. So you don't think that we can you can look at the Church of Laodicea and say, look, this is this is the American church that 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 Paul that John's that the the revelation that John experienced was. Uh, 
uh, uh, what they call a millennialism or something like that, that it is a, that it doesn't, it's not contingent on some sort of view of what millennium we're in and this and that. Like I view the Leo, the church of Laodicea as literal and also symbolic for the countless other churches that we're going to engage in the same sins of the church of Laodicea. Yeah, I, I can't sure. imagine that God is going to judge the church sure, as, but as a Sure, analogy body. and metaphor – Analogy and metaphor, but but we are still a temporal church, Andy. But like, you're not saying to me that the church isn't going that the church at large as a body of Christ and its and and how it structured itself and put itself together isn't going to that, that's going to be judged too in the final days. You think it's just going to be individuals judged on an individual basis? Because that would make that would make no sense as to why we engage in the local church if it's all about your personal conviction because you're you're working towards sanctification and towards the day of judgment. I I would say, okay, well, then why would we go to the local church at all and engage in the local church? If God has set up the structure and called that the body and him, the head, Christ, the head, then I would, I, I guess maybe I'm making a, a like, I'm making right, this So are you saying the air. only reason to have a church is for us to be judged corporately? That's the only reason? No, I think because it's fun, no, for it? no, because I'm saying, I'm saying because it's part of the fundamental nature of Christianity that you have to be in a communal fellowship to be a individual Christian. And so those two things have to exist together. If they don't exist together, then you're probably not a Christian. If you only engage you, in individual- there's no context in scripture of a, of a judgment of a group of people that isn't a temporal judgment. Like a human judgment, like us standing before God and being judged and going to heaven or hell or any of those sorts of things is individual in nature in the New Testament. Do you, do you not view? Is, and always has do you not, been. Do you not Even view in like Ezekiel, the, like in the Old Testament, God yeah. is very clear. Each man will die for his own sins. That doesn't mean that people weren't bound up with, with what yeah. was going to happen in the judgment of the nation. But before God, God counts guilt and innocence individually, even within the family, but much well, less I the know. broader family of God. Okay, but I'm not – again – I'm saying, I'm not disagreeing with that. You're going to be judged fully for your individual, what, what you're doing individually for your individual sins. But I also think yeah, that when so God wipes out, hold on, when so God wipes out, do it. no, no, I'm not saying that. But why then are teachers held more accountable for their teaching than non-teachers? It is. It says in the New Testament that it is a it is a high calling or something like that to be a teacher, to want to be a teacher. Yeah. You're, in you're engaging James. in something high because you can lead many people astray. Why does Paul, uh, Paul say in Galatians, uh, if anybody comes to you and preach, preaches the gospel f- otherwise to what the one that I teach, let them be accursed. He's saying there's a significance to the office of teacher and pastor and the eldership in that they're responsible for the flock. And so there's some sort of communal aspect in which your Nick Gibson, Pastor Nick Gibson, is going to be judged on the basis of how your flock does in some capacity. I don't think that that's a wild out there um out their view of judgment. I think that, and that's a communal I view. I will not be judged on how my flock does. I will be judged on what I do as a shepherd of my flock. I will still be judged based but on what I do say, believe and how I am Christ's disciple. Cause so my, you, but, there, there are plenty of shepherds in the Bible who are faithful and nobody listens to them and God counts them faithful. And there are people right. who lead God's people into times of prosperity who are unfaithful. And God, but why judges does them he judge? Well, why does he judge the people for not listening to the prophets? Because they didn't listen to the prophets. That's Correct. why they're being judged. Because they right. didn't the engage is judged in the on whether communal... or not he says what he's supposed to say. The people are judged on the basis of whether or not they listen. But it's the individual people, accountability. 
Right. But it's the relationship between the prophet and the people that still exists. You're not completely compartmentalized from me or from the rest of your congregation. The, yeah, but the, the body of Christ is made up. Like I, lit, I look at the body of Christ as a literal body of Christ, that they'll be judged individually as individual parts of the larger body, but that the body is still a part of the of, of the church, which is Christ as the head. So I can't, sure. I have a hard time viewing this as a, okay, Nick is going to be judged only for what Nick does. Well, if Nick teaches me that, um, that Jesus, wasn't a god if you say well he right. was man or that he was whatever if that's what you teach me and i fall away from the faith i'm responsible for falling away from the faith for sure you're yes. also responsible, I'm responsible for, for enabling for me to fall away Correct. from the church but you're facilitating Correct. something that is interrelational that is communal at its core you're facilitating yes. something that it, that i as an individual i'm responsible for and it's one of the mysteries of christianity but i think that it's a mystery that the, the evangelical protestant church doesn't take as seriously as it should and i think that it also on the catholic side on the high church side they take too seriously the 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 communal aspect of the christian faith and they say that the priests and the bishops and the popes are the only ones who have the authority to speak on anything and that's an issue but i think that there's a relationship between the the inter, the, the personal conviction side of christianity and the communal fellowship side of Christianity that you, I don't know how we can hold these in tension with each other, but I just don't see it working on either end. If you go all the way to the Pope and you say, well, the, I, I believe what the Pope says, or I believe what the pastor says, or you go all the way to the individualistic, I believe what my convictions are. Cause I've seen that go wrong a million times, more times than I've seen the Catholic church go wrong because I'm in the Protestant evangelical church. People supplanted churches because their churches were made them wear masks. That has nothing to do with the Bible. And that's not, and that's, <laughs> and I think God's going to be really pissed about that. I'm not making an art. And I, that's why I have struggled with this. I think in many cases, that's true. I struggle with this because I think the Catholic catechism is not true. I'm, I'm reading through it right now. I think there's so many things wrong with it. I think evangelical theology is as robust and as um, succinct as I've found. And yet people, and yet I understand why people are leaving evangelicalism for Catholicism. It's because a lot of the evangelical, the, uh, the evangelical theology isn't being, isn't being, um, demanded from the congregation that what's being demanded from the congregation is some sort of pers perspective on interpretation that a pastor has and that can vary and there's a wide range of that within evangelicalism and therefore what people follow in low church evangelicalism and protestantism is the pastor's interpretation of what scripture says oftentimes. So if they're engaging in the same sort of problem that you would say the Catholic church is also engaging in and that they're only listening to what the Pope priest or the Bishop has to say. And I think that they're both creating the same type of thing. And I think that there's a relationship between the communal and the individual aspect of Christianity that people need to figure out and reckon with. And I think that that has to do with a doctrinal catech catechizing people and doctrinal um, clarity in the church structure. So if High Point came out with like a High Point catechism tomorrow and it had 500 different theological perspectives on 500 different problems, I would, I would feel a lot better going to High Point than I do now because- well, I mean, you could start with- the catechism that we give out to kids with your little kids, the new city the catechism, new city that, catechism by yeah, that yeah, Kathy um, Keller put together. That's a, that's a abbreviated version of Westminster. Right. And so do you guys it, subscribe to Westminster? Would you say, but that's the issue. Cause I want to say, I want, I would, I would want for me. And I think a lot of young people will want the, uh, the elders 
to say, this is what we believe. Like I, I knew a guy who who went to High Point for a long time, and then he went and talked to one of the pastors about, well, what do we believe on some of these things? And the, <laughs> the answer was, it wasn't you. The answer was, well, those are really good questions. And that was it. He didn't get the he didn't get the clarity that he was desiring. I'm talking about Gen Zers, not millennials, because there's a difference. Yeah. And so he left the church. And I was like, well, man, that would have been a perfect opportunity to walk him through some of the doctrines that High Point believes. But I have a hard time uh, with the idea that High Point actually knows what they believe on a lot of issues because they don't have a doctrinal statement that's robust enough. And that's the only right. argument I'm making. I'm not saying that everybody oh, sucks. Oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, as someone, so I was a Methodist for seven years, right? I served in, in the United Methodist Church, right? Mm-hmm. And I served in a church that has become part of the global church. So it was a, one of the more conservative ones. And sure. the, um, the, the Methodist Church had a book of discipline and doctrine, right? Yeah. Where they like tried to work it. And they even had a, mm-hmm. like a 500 page book of social theory. Like of their like social commitments, right? Yeah, wow. And these were all like voting majorities of jurisdictional conferences and blah blah blah, right? right. And so they didn't represent the beliefs of the Methodist Church. They they represented the beliefs of what people had voted for at various times, um, and then they were constantly arguing about which things should be changed or overturned, and most of it was ignored. Yeah. And having having a strong sense of those doctrines did not help what did help me in my ministry in that church was the works of john wesley who was the founder of that church who preached hundreds of biblical sermons in which i could quote him as an authority figure over the movement as a whole and he was a very very scriptural biblical preacher and so uh, i tended to use that as an authority in the church rather than constantly quoting the book of discipline right mm-hmm. and i like a lot of these part of the way I've worked this through is do I want a richer faith and spirituality than I have, than I've experienced sometimes in Protestant evangelical churches? I do. Yes. Hmm. Two, am I doing even, am I participating in evangelical spirituality? Well, in many cases, the answer to that is no, I am not doing what evangelical Christian Christianity has said pretty, pretty reliably over time to do regular quiet times, regular Hmm. prayer times, certain kinds of fellowship, um, theological study in the church in Sunday classes and so on. Mm. Like, I mean, less than 10% of our church goes to Sunday classes where theology mm. is meant to be studied together, right? Mm-hmm. So there are a number of ways in which like we have plenty of opportunities for catechism. We advertise them. We invite people to them. Like mm. r- right, right now though, like one of the ways we're catechizing people is people are going through the book of Romans. Romans mm. is a book of doctrine. Very mm-hmm. strong doctrine. The first week we had 65 people. The second week we had 70 people in a church. Our attendance last week for adults was 818. So that's, I mean, that's not quite 10%, yeah. you know? It's close. I'm not saying that that's bad, but I'm just, I'm saying that it's, it's, uh, but I, I do like the Protestant practice of seeking to catechize your people with the Bible. I just don't like that because I don't think that it actually, dude, the, the people who are, I grew up in the generation of, of catechizing with the Bible. The Why do you think those people are going to take a, a catechism any more seriously than the Bible? If they don't be, take the, the Bible same seriously, why would they take the Westminster Catechism seriously? Because there's explanate, there's the, this for the same reason I started this podcast, the same reason that I got kicked out of crew, because there's theological explanation for biblical interpretation that, that, that exists. And and the and the issue that I ran into as a kid is that everybody was was in quote unquote Protestantly catechized, and that you did awanas, you you go to the the youth group, you talked about the Bible, you discussed it, you and we all did that. And and then here's the result: less than nine percent of Gen Zers are at church; they've all left the church. And and the reasoning for that was 
because they found the inconsistencies in doctrine. That was what Ken Ham talked about when they did a study on this 10 years ago. People say, well, Ken Ham, whatever. I'm just, they just asked young people why they weren't coming to church, and this is what they found. They said, um, and I'm not calling Ken Ham a they. I realized in another podcast, I said they when I talked about Ken Ham, and people might think that he, he's like a- You mean like Answers like, of Genesis and the organization? Yeah, 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 not like, I'm saying him and his team. Um, they found that young people- saw that in situations they would say, well, you can kind of interpret Genesis however you want. It could be evolution, but then they would say, oh, but you have to listen to Jesus when he says he can't have sex outside of marriage. And young people would just say, well, here I can kind of decide what I believe and over here I can't. That just seems like a doctrinal contradiction. And so they would leave the church altogether because there was no clarity in doctrine because their whole life had been that they felt lied to, which is the truth about my generation. And I'm not saying that the evangelical perspective that you came from, Nick, out of Catholicism wasn't the correct way of doing it for your generation in that time. I'm saying that the tides are changing and young people aren't going to come to Christianity on the basis of personal conviction as it relates to church structure and doctrine, because They'll be convicted into Christianity, but what they believe about Christianity, they need a lot more structure for because their entire life has been an absolute blistering cluster F of contradictions, lies, illogical fallacies, and 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 um, deception. And so what they're looking for is for a church to love them enough to give them the doctrinal background or what what Chesterton is talking about here is like what we talked about with conservatism and liberal and progressivism, the cons- – uh, the conservative doctrines that will help them, uh, will, that will help them navigate the ever-changing, progressing world and relationships around them, and I think that the when the Protestant Church recognizes that that's what this generation needs, it's it, they're going to bring a lot more people in. We're going to get that nine percent up to twenty percent, and I think that that number has not gone up. It keeps going down, and I think we need to self-examine and say what is necessary for this time. Because um, I think that it is changing in a lot of ways. So I'm not saying that your conversion out of Catholicism was irre- uh, irrelevant, you know, because I don't think that's the case. I'm saying that the same type of thing that you experienced 25 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago or whatever, however many it was now, is different than what people are experiencing today. And I think the church needs to respond accordingly. And I've seen them refuse to respond because if it smells like Catholicism, it is Catholicism is what I found with a lot of older folks in the church. So I don't know if that makes sense. I, I, I think it makes sense, but I think that's the argument that I'm making. Not that I think that that anybody who would come out of Catholicism because it was ritualistic and they found themselves having no spiritual life is wrong. No, they were right for coming out of Catholicism. But I think people are going back to Catholicism because they're find a, finding a richer spiritual life there which we need to figure out, okay, well, why is that happening? Because it is happening at rates we haven't seen before. And nobody's asking those sorts of questions. And I feel called to go to that direction for the structure, but I know that their theology is wrong. So I'm in conflicted. I feel like I'm schizophrenic half the time. I, I am way more interested in the mass of people outside the church than in the relatively minuscule number of people moving from our churches to Catholicism. If people are moving from my church to Catholicism and the Catholicism that they seek is a spiritually rich, doctrinally orthodox one, um, then I'm not concerned about that. But, Anybody but, who but, leaves my church and goes into a spiritual context in which they will persevere in Christian faith to the end and are decently well shepherded and that works okay for them, 
I'm fine with that. Yeah, but you you and I both agree that the the Catholic pers- theological perspective assumes some stuff that is potentially damning. Potentially damning. Think about the like nature grace um, continuum that the primary the primary that nature and gra- grace can can interact with people through nature as a primary element of uh, Catholic catechism, but a secondary element of of the Catholic catechism is that sin corrupts partially. That that would be like a potentially damning. I don't know how. I don't know. I don't know if you yeah, believe. That. I don't. I, don't I know have a really happens. hard time. I have a really hard time knowing what doctrines are damning. You know, I tend to. I'm think just like saying potentially seven, damning. I think like the seven deadly sins. There are mistakes that are damning in the sense that they lead you away from faith to apostasy, and I think right. that which leads to apostasy is damning. Uh, is going to be damning, right? And so, right. I, there are some doctrines in the Bible that are damning, like the refusal to forgive, is damning. Because it's yeah. the rejection of forgiveness and grace. Right. right. Um, in Galatians, a salvation that is by works and not by faith right. is anathema or damned. Right. Yeah. Um, so there are a few things like that where we are explicitly told or rejecting to believing that Jesus is the Christ. Or like James, are, like, faith without works is dead. You have that's right. also a thing too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there are a few things like that where you're like, if this thing is an operation, you're, the mm-hmm. faith is not real. It's not legitimate mm-hmm. faith. And it's it, 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 and therefore the person remains damned, right? Or is damned. But yeah. I, I think when, it, when I get to questions like, questions of doctrine, people say, oh, that's damning. I don't go along with the anathemas of ancient, of ancient Protestantism either. They're like, I mean, they were real um, generous. I mean, that is like very... Uh, uh, maximal about all the things that would damn other people. I don't know that Jesus is going to damn people for believing in transubstantiation. That's what I'm saying. Uh, I, I, I don't know either, but I, I don't know he, that. But what I can say, I is, wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so either, but I think some people do think so. But what I am saying is that I, I find it, I just think it's a weird that if you're the pastor of a church and your primary, you're, you're, you would consider maybe you're a pastor teacher, but your, your title is pastor that your primary responsibility is to maintain the flock and to keep keep the flock uh you know part of the christian family and like to be christ followers growing in their faith and and not running away from christ that that's your primary uh responsibility as a pastor that you're not technically an evangelist and therefore it's hard for me to be like okay well then why do you care more about the outside coming in than the inside going out especially if you're in evangelical protestantism because you believe it's true I think my answer to that is also, Andy, that I th- we lose more people to the world than Catholicism. Like the idea that like most of the people leaving our church are going to Catholicism just isn't true. They're mostly yeah. going back to the world. And so right. fighting the world is still my thing, both for the re- retention of yeah. the sheep and for the finding of new ones. And I'm saying catechizing and doctrinal clarity prevents both. So you would prevent people from going to Catholicism and from going to the world in a more succinct, clear way that people would have to make very clear decisions. Okay. Here's what we believe about sexuality, whatever high point believes. Let's say high point believes you can't be a gay Christian through and through. You have to repent fully of it, which I think is the correct view. I don't know if that's their viewpoint, but let's say that it is. And you have that in a doctrinal statement written out in all nice and fancy words. And when somebody comes to you and says, well, I'm struggling with this. I want to be a gay Christian. I believe inside be gay Christianity. And 
what uh, what do you think about this? And you say, well, look, like our our clear perspective here that all of our elders and our pastors and our staff have to subscribe to is that you cannot be a gay Christian Christian because it's a contradiction in terms that you have to repent of homosexuality. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be a part of our church if you struggle with homosexuality. It means that you have to be actively fighting that and being like be repenting of it. That person is therefore faced with a very clear decision that they have to make. And I think what I find in low church Protestant churches is that you could ask five to 10 different leaders in the church, the same question and get seven different answers. And that drives people, young people freaking crazy because I'm like, well, then what does our church think is true? And everybody says, well, it's kind of about your personal conviction. Well, then how am I supposed to function? Because everybody believes different things here. And it causes, it causes uh, what Paul talks about these little, what does he say? Like, like little arguments between Christians that we shouldn't be getting engaged in, in some capacity. I think it causes these arguments that are constantly happening where we're focusing more on figuring out what's, what we think is doctrinally true than we are in actually pursuing godliness and evangelism. And those are the contradictions functionally that I see coming out of bad doctrinal stances or lack of doctrinal stances in the church. I, and I, I mean, I, don't you think that this is in some ways what, what led Chesterton to orthodoxy? It, like you just said earlier, is these is these specific the, the very things that he didn't like were decisions that he had to make about whether he not whether or not he was going to believe about Christianity. It was the specificity in the doctrine, not the ambiguity. And it feels to me like like that's what he's saying. I'm, and I'm, I wanted to brought, drop back to this, but I'm just, dude, I am just so just having a hard time with this, even while reading people like Chesterton and Lewis who says. You know, if you're not an Anglican or whatever, you know, you're arrogant because you think you can do this better than people who have been doing it for 500 years. You know, he's got a quote saying that. Um, and I'm like, yeah, I, I, I think there's some truth behind that. And I think what Chesterton's saying is true as well, that specificity is what actually helps, not ambiguity. People are finding ambiguity in the Protestant church. Listen, Andy, if I found these other traditions to be vibrant in practice, if they were verdant and fruitful then I would rethink my position. Yeah. They're not. Well, like, like I've had people say, um, Hey, I think Catholicism is the one true church. And I, I may, I think maybe I want to be part of it. And I, and my response in many cases has been, do you think it's fruitful? Like God's one true church. Does it seem like a vine connected to the father? I mean, like to the source. I mean, like, I'm sorry, but I, I don't like, I, I see a lot of richness in its history and, um, there's a lot of truth in the large edifice, but like, I mean, and, and I do think that the Catholic church is starting to come back to life a little bit, but, but mainly because it's, it's been cut so close. Like Couldn't you because, say because historically? Of its losses are so dear, there's, there's some point where any movement, when it declines, if the movement has any viability in it at all, at some point it gets back to its purity. Everybody else leaves. And at that point, there's some point of repurification where the thing can take off again. Right. Mm -hmm. And so people say like the church is just going to disappear in America. I I doubt that. I I think what's going to happen is it's going to, it's going to, it's going to lose enough people until it gets really like the people are there really, really want to be there. And then I think it starts to grow again. And I think Catholicism may be getting to that point, at least in certain parishes and certain dioceses or certain churches that they've lost so much that the only people left are the people who actually believe. And now yeah. maybe something can happen. 
I don't know. Right. Um, right, and I right. don't know if I don't know if Roman Catholics are apostate or not. I mean, I I tend to th- I tend to see a deep devotion in Christ and His death and resurrection that they believe that they believe that the gospel they believe in is a gospel of grace. When I push yeah. them on it, they say they believe in justification by faith alone. Mm-hmm. They, but they believe in a kind of striving in spirituality Sacramental that I think in some view. ways yeah. is consistent with the New Testament right. striving in spiritual life. And I and I so I just throw up my hands and go look. I don't know what to do with you. Right. Hopefully this is great. Okay. Do you but see this the same... is not what I'm going to teach. Sure. Do you see the same issue in, in evangelical or low church non-denominational? I see that, not that same issues. issue, but the, the different right. issue that produces the same, the, the, the thing that you were like, look, is this producing a Christian? Is this producing godliness? Um, you're saying you're not seeing that in the Catholic Church. Do you, are you willing to say the same thing about non-denominational churches in America? Because I, 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 I absolutely yeah. don't think that those are producing godly people at all. Yeah, look, when I say that I'm an evangelical, I don't mean that I'm a Bill Hybels evangelical. I mean that I'm a Carl F.H. Henry evangelical. Carl F.H. Yeah. Henry wrote the better part of a thousand pages on just the doctrine of God and his authority. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so like I, but I do, I am Protestant and evangelical in the sense that I believe that the evangel is primary and that that is rooted in our reading, interpretation, application of the written scriptures translated into the vernacular for the church's mutual sure. edification. That in that sense, I am just dyed in the wool and evangelical. And I believe that the proclamation of that faith in the communities in which we live and beyond is fundamental to our health. Inviting people personally to believe and be saved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then from there, we build an increasingly robust theology. And in some ways, evangelicals, as they build that increasingly robust theology, end up different. Some are Arminians and some are Anglicans and some are Lutherans and some are, right? Do you you think, do you believe in the Puritan city on a hill type deal? Or are you not into that, like, like nations, I mean, the, the, not nations repenting, um, the, like, because you said to, to the the personal belief, the personal conversion. Do you do you believe that that can be in any way connected to a, a like? And we did talk about revival before. It's all about the personal conversion, which is why I agree with that. But do you think that there's any responsibility to the church, to the larger communities at large, to to the quote unquote like the world at large, um, in a communal sense? Like people kind of try to make a nationalism. I don't I don't like it, but there's like the yeah. two arguments for nationalism. Yeah, um, I think that's one of those things where the de- definition matters a lot. Of what nationalism is? Yeah, what ma- nationalism, yeah. What, what Christian yeah. nationalism would mean. Mm-hmm. If cr- Christian nationalism means that the nature of human beings themselves requires something very close to, if not exactly, a Judeo-Christian <laughs> ethic for human beings to flourish – and that a consensus built around that ethic is necessary for a properly functioning society. I think that's just correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that that's necessary if our society is going to function now, to what extent can that be exerted upon people as opposed to people people being persuaded of it? Right. Right. right, right. Which is a different reason why I'm a preacher rather than a politician. Preachers persuade Mm -hmm. politicians use the government to force Mm -hmm. and nudge and cajole. And I don't, Jesus did not give me those powers. And so I believe yeah. that sadly, I believe that people have to be persuaded to change, for, for, at yes. least from the position of the pulpit. 
Right. No, I, I can I can get behind that. I, I agree with that. There's, but a, there's I do a believe personal that, conversion I, I, that needs to happen. I do believe that the church has regulative power in the church. I believe that the church is supposed to judge the family of God. Hmm. And that if it doesn't, it's completely derelict in its duty. And as the reformers say, would not be a true church. Hmm. A church without church discipline is not a true church, according to Lutheran, Calvin, and so on. Do you what, what what then do you attribute to Chesterton ending up a Catholic? Do you think that that's just uh, his relationship that he was just close by Catholicism? Like in I mean, distance? he was always Catholic. I mean, I don't, there was no I, there was no Christian Chesterton that wasn't Catholic, as far as I know. I heard his mom was was Protestant who converted to Catholicism, and then that then he moved towards Catholicism. Oh, I don't know. But do you think that there's any validity to to because I don't think that all that we've talked about for the last 30 minutes has been different from what this book is talking about. Like, I think that there, do you think there's any validity to the fact that Chesterton is writing a book on orthodoxy as a Catholic compared to a Protestant? And I do think that there's validity to that. I think that it, I, it feels like to me, it, 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 it proves his perspective even more than it, than it, than it hurts it. Where I think a lot of Protestants would say, well, his 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 connection to the Catholic Church would hurt his perspective because orthodoxy is found in personal conviction, whereas he's engaging in this high church, uh, more <laughs> more like communal version of Christianity. And I don't want to just I'm not saying Protestants aren't communal. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Do you understand the question? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I do. I, I think part of what Chesterton's getting at is when he talks about orthodoxy. In his arguments, he's using this sort of sense of the whole history of the church, what Mm -hmm. she has believed and what she has done. So within this realm of like evaluating orthodoxy, he's thinking about monks and monasticism and crusades Mm -hmm. and all these sorts of things. And as expressions of Christian belief and life Mm -hmm. and orthodoxy, people who have been within the Christian tradition, reasonably considered orthodox, have behaved this way and they behaved that way. What do we make of that, right? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I think Chesterton is being minimalistic. He's explicitly saying he does, he's, the Protestants can believe this and, and be fine. I think that, I think there's an equivocation fallacy in how we're using the word orthodox because you're, you're talking about creating and maintaining right belief in the church. And he's talking about if you compare to reality, a Christian view of the world yeah, he's and an agnostically view. secular yeah. one, which makes sense, mm-hmm. right? Like he's trying to correlate Christian orthodoxy with the world. Right. He's, and he's, what he's, we're trying to say is yeah. how do we substantiate theological orthodoxy as a creed of belief in the church? And I, there's a, obviously there's a, some relationship between those two, but that's not what, what Chesterton is talking no, about. No, I'm not saying that's what he's talking about. I just, <laughs> my, I wonder what his, what he would say about Protestantism. Like I would be interested in hearing his, his understanding of orth of of orthodoxy in that second way, um, and not yeah. in the uh, not opposed to the world, but opposed to um, Protestant uh, lowercase l liberalism. Yeah, I, I mean, I the, sh- my short answer is I'm not sure what Chesterton would say. I assume yeah. he would say something like, like as he moves on in this chapter, he talks about like ethics that seem to contradict each other standing side by side. Yeah. And I think that in the history of the Catholic Church, outside of the Reformation, there have been reformers that have stood up to the larger body of the church and said, this has to get better. This has to change. This has to reform. Jay Gresham is a good example. They found a way to make that work. Well, yeah, but I mean, he's Protestant. I think in the book, you see St. Dominic Dominic and St. Bernard were our examples that he gave of people who were like, 
reforming kind of yep. people. In most of the history of the medieval church, the great reformers were the great monastics, hmm. right? They were they were they seemed to have the most reforming effect on the church because as they built their monasteries and they were communal, especially the mendicant groups, the ones that went around, that mm-hmm. traveled and were itinerant, they they did a lot of change to create a lot of change in the church, you know, mm-hmm. as monastic groups. So in that sure. sense, monasticism became a a way of reforming the church outside of the magisterium. Right. Mm-hmm. The monastics were kind of like the country priest monk people. And then yep. you had these like important people in Rome that were telling everybody what to do. And there was always this reform tension in the Catholic Church between those people. I think that's one of the reasons why the Catholic Church has struggled of late. Monasticism has all but died out mm-hmm. in the Roman Catholic Church. There isn't there just aren't like very vibrant monastic movements, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Breathing life, spiritual life into the Catholic Church. Where people are saying, the main thing I want to do with my life is pursue God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Instead of the main thing I want to do with my life is lead the superstructure of the church doctrinally and functionally in, in terms of power. Right, right. And so I think that um, – so there has been a lot of reform in the Roman yeah. Catholic Church, but um, oftentimes not in the way that the reformers were looking for. Yeah. They wanted to take it right to the magisterium and reform the church. The monastics tended to deal with whatever the church was doing and function mm-hmm. within it. Yeah. Um, but when Luther saw that his monastic, because Luther was a monk, right? Like he was trying to reform the church as a monk, but he realized that his disagreement wasn't just in terms of the spiritual life. It was no. fundamentally at the core of the doctrine. Exactly. And at that right. point, he found himself fighting with the magisterium. Right. In which I say, just for pe- for clarification, it might sound to people like I'm defending Catholicism in this podcast. I, and I'm not defending Catholicism's theology. I was just talking about Catholicism, structure, practical church structure and, and longevity that I, I, th- I think Luther was right. Like I'm, I am with the Protestants that I think that it's, it's, uh, you know, faith or grace through faith alone. That's right. right. Grace. What is it? Grace through faith. Alone. I'm, I'm all for that stuff. So I don't want people to think that I'm, that I'm like just becoming a Catholic right now. Cause I'm not, but I'm yeah. just trying to figure that stuff out. Can we talk about a couple of these yeah. contradictions? Well, oh, go ahead. I want to say one more practical thing about this. And that is, is that like in the 20 years and particularly the 15 years I've been or 14 years I've been pastoring in Madison, I would put my record as someone who intentionally belongs to the whole church of all of the people who believe in and follow Jesus the Christ up against anybody's, any bishop, any communalist, any denominational person. Hmm. Like um, our church has done more in, with, for, and to other churches, unlike us, of people who love Christ and follow his word than any church I know of. We are the most non-sectarian most like open-minded, all including, and yet doctrinally differentiating mm-hmm. church that I know of that exists in and our I, region. And I and that comes from a biblical evangelical perspective on the church. Kind of. It is both Presbyterians, because Presbyterians would would disagree with that. And Anglicans that being open-minded and doctrinally um what would be a good word for that? Doctrinally, um, I don't want to say liberal because I'm saying doctrinally. No, when open. I say open-minded, what I mean is, is that like I can work with charismatics. I can work with right. black churches. I can work with Latino churches. I can, I can even work with Catholic churches. Like I have a, a, a good friend who's a Greek Orthodox priest, who's a Ukrainian Orthodox priest. Like, do we have a lot of theological differences? Yes. Sufficiently that he might not be sure that I'm going to heaven. Yep. But I think he believes in Jesus the Christ. 
I'm not sure that he's anathema. I see Christ working in him. And so I'm trying to participate in him, recognizing that I think he's part of the body of Christ, most widely speaking, mm. right? So I'm trying to purify the center, but I'm still reading and in participation out to the edges. And I don't, I mean, you can go through your liberal Methodists and your Roman Catholic bishops and your like super political so-and-sos and such and suches. And I, and you can go to your big seeker churches that say we're for the city. And as far as the body of Christ goes, I would put my record up against anybody's Yeah, in terms I mean, of my willingness to work as broadly in the body of Christ as I possibly can, believing that there is one church, there is one head over that church, there is one authority in that church, right. that he has spoken and shown himself with authority in the scriptures, that the scriptures are not hard to interpret. They're pretty straightforward in many ways. We have not yet believed all the stuff that's clear, right? And that we can learn its basic content and it can shape our faith. And I believe I, that. Yeah. And I, I'm I not mean, saying I'm against any kind of catechism at High Point Church. Right. I'm just saying what I am saying is I don't, I mean, most of High Point Church couldn't tell you three of the things in our little evangelical doctrinal statement. I much know. Much less. That's a problem. Like a catechism. But I, I, you get, you said all that and I, fine, let people make that decision how they want to. Cause I mean, I've, I've been, I was at High Point for seven years and I would say all the things that you just said are why I think High Point isn't going in the right direction. So I, as I'm seeing it in the um, congregational, like what they're, what going in and out of the congregation and seeing, knowing the people of the church, I'm seeing it go in a different direction. Time will tell. And I'm not trying to de degrade High Point and I'm not, cause I've been there. I like, I know the church I, and I, and I, it was, it was, it was. It's tough to be the person my, with the positive vision. Like I'm super good at criticizing people and things. Yeah. But, but, it, but it's, it's tough, tough to be the, to be person, the person with the realistic with the vision who's supposed to do everything. It's also tough to be the person with the with the negative vision when everybody else has a positive vision. I mean, Luther was the guy as, with the negative vision. As the vision. person who, Luther has done, was the guy. who does both all the time. No, well, it was easier for Luther to say all this stuff is wrong than to build a Protestant church. When Luther tried to build a Protestant church, everybody got the wrong idea and you had the peasants revolt and 50,000 people got slaughtered. Sure. I'm not I'm not disagreeing with that, but I don't think I don't think that what I'm doing is constant um, is constant like like pessimism about it. Like, I, I think what I'm saying is that the the that we are not you and I are looking at the same entity from a different perspective and seeing a different um outcome we're seeing different fruits of it and i do, i just think time is going to tell if i was wrong or if you were wrong because i i don't look at i just i can't i try to look at it from a different perspective and not and the same result continues to come out and i don't think that that's because everybody sucks at high point i do not think that and i don't even like mm -hmm. analyzing it on this podcast because i think people are going to think that it sounds like slander and that's not what i'm doing i don't hate the church of high point i'm i'm frustrated with the direction that it goes in for reasons that i've stated on this podcast and and yet like uh, you know, it's like the whole situation where does the Pope think that what the Pope is doing is wrong? No. Does the Pope have a good perspective on if the Pope is doing the wrong thing? No, because he's got everybody around him, all, all his sycophants around him telling him that he's great. And I would say maybe that's the case at high point. And you might come back in 10 years and be like, you were wrong. Screw you. So that might just be the dynamic. I don't know. Cause I, I, I mean, I, I think I know, mm -hmm. but you think, you know, too. 
and it's a, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough thing. So I, I don't want people to think that this is like, I know great people at high point. I'm not sure. So I, I, th- I think one of the trying. interesting questions here is what are you going to title this podcast? <laughs> Are you gonna call this <laughs> is high point orthodox? Yeah, chapter six in orthodoxy. Right. I was just thinking about that, like as we were talking, I was like, shoot. But I think this is a conversation that people are. Interested for the record, in. I think the listener would could confess that I have I have attempted to bring us back to orthodoxy a couple of times. Yeah, and that's fine. Listen to the to the listener. Look, hey, dude, look, the people, the young people, everybody that I know, they say they love the four-hour podcast where we talked yeah. about a ton of different things. So, Yes. I felt like we had a pretty good agenda for that one, though. Like, we knew yeah. what we were going to talk about. We said what we were talking about. We talked about it. Like, that was you, actually not that undisciplined, even though it was so much longer. Do you Whereas feel this like, one, we're like, we're trying to talk about orthodoxy, and I'm like, wait, why I am I defending? I, for some reason, I feel like It sounds like this is in your crawl. Like, it, I mean, for months, you've yes. been like, we're trying to work through this like Anglican yeah. thing of like, That's how much I authority, how much freedom, how does this work? I Listen, a lot of people go through that. Like Vince Pieri, like just about fell off the wagon for a year mm-hmm. trying to work through that. I mean, like he was trying to sort out what is the relationship between freedom of Me conscience and, uh, yeah. And the authority of the church. And and like to bring this back to Chesterton, Chesterton would say, yes, that those two things have to sort of exist side by side. Mm -hmm. And the church has actually always had great institutionalists Mm -hmm. and great radical reformers. Yeah. Yeah. Who are like, look, this is what's right. You guys are all wrong. And Mm -hmm. other people are like, look, if we don't get together and have some kind of structure, this is going nowhere. And the church was at its best when those two people found a way to do something productive together. Do you think that's true? Do you think J. J. Gresham Machen was would have been better off trying to, or Luther would have been better off trying to work with the mainline church for Gresham or the Catholic Church for Luther? No, probably not. But I think the situations where it worst broke down might not be the best test cases. There have been places where people have figured out how to work. So, for example, Melanchthon was very much a systematizer. Luther very much like a stone thrower. They're very different people. But they, by working together, they were able to get Protestant Reformation through in Germany. If it has just been Luther throwing stones without Melanchthon like doing some political stuff. Another example is like there's this there's this um, axis between Luther and the the Lord over his region called Frederick the Wise. Mm-hmm. Um, Frederick the Wise was like super, super, super sly politician. Deep, mm-hmm. deep faith. Mm-hmm. So deep he had spent a, a large portion of his wealth mm-hmm. buying Catholic relics from all over the world. They were <laughs> one of the greatest sure. relic collections, right? And then Luther comes out with like the Bible and like Protestantism and whatever. Yeah. And Frederick the Wise protected him. And without Frederick, Luther would have been dead. Yeah. And mm-hmm. because of the institutionalism of Frederick the Wise, but yet still he, he had integrity. He wasn't a a politician in the no integrity sense. He was a politician in the high integrity sense, which is very rare. Because of Frederick the Wise's protection of Luther, Luther got to be Luther. What also happened was Luther then gave Frederick the Wise the German Bible. And the ultimate result was Frederick the Wise got rid of all of his artifacts. Interesting. Wow. Right? And so there was this interplay between them that created this like super synergistic reality and either one of them was not, could not have done it. You have to have the firebrand and you have to have the prudent person. Mm -hmm. And without that synergy, like somebody asked me recently, why do you do this podcast with Andy? 
Oh, really? You know? They asked you that? And yeah, I've had because oh, it wasn't like was me. it like screw Andy that type of thing? Was it like why do you engage? There was with a little that bit of that, yeah. But yeah, it was kind of like Nick, you have so much to do. You're so busy. Why? You, and part of it's like part of what I'm trying to show is that the firebrand and the prudent man can talk to each other and maybe get somewhere. The other thing too is this is a fairly popular podcast too. I mean, it's not like this is going out to anybody, right? Yeah. Like there's that aspect too. For those of people out there who are like, why would anybody engage with this? It's because I've built something that's actually doesn't suck. So there's, I have some capacity to build things and, and I would love mm-hmm. for those people to try to find something good about me, maybe um, because a lot of those <laughs> no, people well, have the the people that I've talked to have mostly been like you're you're trying to launch campuses. You're sure, you got like too many things. Key place in your place. Mm-hmm. Like you could be spending this time preparing different content for other venues. Why yeah. do you choose to use your time for this? And mm-hmm. my response has generally been my original my original justification of public discipleship. Public yeah, mental right. discipleship, right. but right. also like as you get older, there's also the distinction between like your personality type and how you're engaging with questions. Mm-hmm. And I am an institutionalist, and you're definitely not. You're mm-hmm. like as not. It's you're like you're you're out there by yourself. Freaking hate the And kind of coming in, in way, from the in outside circle, and I'm I'm at the center of an institution that's trying mm-hmm. to build stuff. And so having the non-institutionalist and the institutionalist sparring, I think, has some real yeah. benefit. No, I, I agree with that. And I think w- what you were saying about the institutionalists and the evangelical individualists, I find that probably best in in J.I. Packer, in his evangelical Anglicanism that I find as as this this like very, very good uh, relationship between the individual and the communal part of Christianity. And I, I, I people don't read Jack Packer as much as I do, but the book, the heritage of Anglican theology was the, that was the starting point for me in trying to, to figure some of this stuff out. So, yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> how much time do you have left? Cause we're at two hours. Yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to get off the horse here at some point. Yeah. I, okay. I think one of the things I'd say, I want to say about this, Andy is as I have, gone through my own theological education over the course of my life. Mm-hmm. I have, I have very much believed in reading people of the past as integral to mm-hmm. growing. There is so much Christian writing throughout history at this point that nobody can read anything like all of it. Yeah. Right. Oh, like you have yeah. to be very no, specific I mean, about what you choose. Yeah. But I think reading as much of it as you can is important. Even if you're going to be a populist, like, um, who's Saddleback guy, Rick Warren. Okay. Um, Every, every year of records ministry, he takes a major Christian leader from the past and reads everything they ever wrote. Hmm. So That's he's crazy. read everything Wesley ever wrote, everything Calvin's <laughs> ever written, everything Luther's ever written. He's gone through some of these people. I think he did wow. Aquinas one year, which is – that's a lot of pages, that's right? That's insane, yeah. And he reads everything they've ever written. So like some of these people that come off as like these like super populists, they actually in their theological self-education have really pursued – like deep readings in the history of the Christian church. I, I gravitate towards the fathers, right? As of the first five years of the Christian church, sure. but I've read a lot of Aquinas, a lot of the reformers. And so I think that by pursuing that kind of education among our clergy, and that's one of the things that I, that I think is necessary for Protestantism, especially evangelical Protestantism to grow. And this is something that got brought up uh, in the seventies. So 
Part of the part of the history of evangelicalism that people don't understand is is that evangelicals evangelicalism launching as an American movement, an American post war movement in the nineteen forties. The leaders of Protestant evangelicalism were brainiacs, hmm. like they were highly educated, very theologically rich churchmen. So Carl F. H. Henry, Kenneth Conser, Harold J. Ockengay, some of these people, right? Sure. And they were most of them had earned PhDs, and so on, right? And so even Billy Graham, as he began to lead the movement, he had close relationships with people like Conser and Henry, because they they wanted to. He, Billy Graham wanted to stay on track. And so when Christianity Today was started as a thought journal, not as a magazine, yeah, Carl F. H. Henry was the first editor because he'd been a newspaper man and he had a PhD in theology and he traveled very widely. And so the, the early evangelical movement from the 40s through the, fir- the beginning of the 70s was a theologian-led movement. Yeah. What happened in the 1970s is that people like Bill Hybels started planting fast-growing churches mm. based on the model of the Crystal Cathedral that is using certain kind of psychological and business practices to build large organizations and yeah. to win large hearings right. for Jesus. That was still possible in the 70s to do that way. And so then you got the Bill Hybels generation of church growth people. Mm. They be, then became the next generation of leaders of evangelicalism. Yeah. And that's what we have now. And you but don't have the theological richness because there's, there's of a Carl Henry, and, and you don't, and you don't have much thought put into um, should a church be four thousand people? Like nobody's really even thinking. That's just assumed. Like yeah, whatever right. it should be it, four thousand people. Yeah, it wasn't even thought possible before yeah. somebody like Bill Hybels, right. and then it isn't thought desirable after to not to do that. Right? right. However, here's what I would say now. Since I started going to seminary. So Bill Hybels had been in ministry for a while. I went to seminary at the turn of the millennium, right? We've had 20 years of this. Now what we're seeing is a mixture. Mm-hmm. There are some people that are still kind of doubling down on the, we don't need that much education. Mm-hmm. Let's do the big church thing. Like how you manage and organize an organization. Good, good communication, good vision. All that stuff is what will build a church and community engagement, being a missional church. Mm-hmm. There are other people that have been, are much more theological. They still do some of those other things. Like they want to be a missional church. They want to be blah, blah, but they're doing it from a theologically robust place of mm-hmm. personal education and teaching. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think we're seeing both. And I think time is going to tell which, which is going to have lasting impact. Yeah. I actually think both will have a lasting impact in different ways. That's where I just can't, I don't even, I don't know how you could come to that conclusion because I, I don't. I well, think, I said lasting. I didn't say good. I'm not sure if the secret model will be like how, better or worse, but I think it's definitely having an impact. I think it's having some sort of impact, but I don't think it'll last over 200 years. Like, I don't think that impact is going to last over 200. I guess it depends on what you think is a long lasting um, impact. Cause I, I don't think it's a, uh, you're not drinking I think alcohol. That That's not alcohol. What is it's that? It's an alcohol bottle, but it's water. Okay. I don't like drinking out of plastic jugs. Yeah, so yeah. it's. Cause it, it's, yeah, I like cause, drinking yeah. out of glass. Nick's getting drunk on this podcast. No. Yeah. No, no I, I mean, most of the things that exist now will have impact in 200 years. It's just, what's the impact? Right. 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 Well, they still have a robust, mm-hmm. vibrant impact. But I, I mean, I agree with Ronald Reagan when he says like every generation has to understand liberty and reestablish it anew. I think that's mm-hmm. true of Christian faith too. That even yeah. though that we have a great heritage that runs through generations, every generation has a gut check mm-hmm. for the context of their times. And it yes. is true that for yes. Gen Z and, and the generations that are growing up right now, the amount of change happening over the course of their lifetime mm-hmm. is multiples of yes, the change right. happening in most everybody's entire lifetimes. 
Yeah, I would and say so it's, it's like, similar to the 1800s Industrial Revolution or the early 1900s with the two world wars. Like that, that the types yeah. of changes that are happening. Yeah. Right. And I would say less violent, but more different. Yes. Like the, yes. the, the, the change to a, a image and screen based life as a human being. Yeah, it's wild. Is a cataclysmic human change mm-hmm. that we do not understand and that we yeah. just embraced without knowing what would go wrong. Right. And Gen Z was basically raised on a technological parent and parenting philosophy that had, as far as I can tell, no merit. <laughs> yeah, and literally none. Now no they're thought. dealing with. Right. I mean, there's not much I mean, thought just, put into it. It was like, oh, yeah, these things exist. Yeah. Here you go. Twelve year old have it. It's like, and whoa. I think and I think they were like six iterations down the line of that. Like you had disestablishment in the 60s mm-hmm. all the way through this. So you have a bunch of like layers of what I would consider inhuman philosophies. Yeah. And you can only have so much inhuman philosophy before people start to break down mentally, personally, yeah. psychologically, spiritually huh. and so on. And wow. I would also argue that spirituality is the highest capacity of the human person. But it also requires a certain amount of development to, mm-hmm. to like actually be able to be an integrated person. And one of the things I'm hearing Gen Z and even younger, like Rachel's generation, like kids are like 19 right now. She's is, Gen Z. Okay. But what I'm hearing from the, some of that generation is I can't have a meaningful conversation mm-hmm. yeah. with people. Dude. Dude, it's I, like they're mentally like you can talk about who's cool, it. who's up, who's down, but like what's true. It's not even that you talk about Why who's cool. It's matter? about who who's hot. It's like you can talk about things that are pri- like ninety percent sexual and very, very, very degraded yeah. versions of sexuality, and then you yeah. can't talk about very deep. And I mean, I mean, dude, I'm working right. with some. People I used to right talk now. with people like like when I used to talk with people about some of this stuff. You could tell it made them uncomfortable. Exactly. To talk about it. Right? No, dude. When now I, bring this I talk stuff to people up, about it and they're confused. They, dude, not even like that. They're mentally I, I, confused and they don't know anything about any of it. They don't know anything about any, but I've talked to some young people recently. Every time I bring up anything that even is semi-related to morals, not even Christianity, just, just moral. I mean, I think they're connected. They, right. they go on their phone. They can't even tell. They don't want to, like their brain shuts off. They get, they pull their phone up and they don't want to talk about it. They cannot talk about it. They go on their phone. They, they use that as a way to, because they can't, they, they don't know, they don't, they don't have the ability to deal with mental discomfort. Exactly. They have no resilience and, that, and they say that they're getting anxious. Is, you can't think about anything important exactly. without mental this discomfort. Is, dude, I said this for years. I said, this is why I think, well, boy, I'm going to say something that's probably going to make people mad. Just, just listen for a second. And maybe there's a better way of saying it that I'll learn in about 10 minutes. But I think that the public school system in America and the technological system, the, the, what technology has done to young people in America is worse than um, the concentration camps in Germany or bec- because, and this is what people are like, what in the world are you talking about? Listen, here's why. Because I think that in Christianity, the um, it is worse to not have the ability to think or to have your mind so um, depraved due to sin and due to mindlessness than it is to die for something, to physically die. And so I think that what's happened in the public school system in, and also with technology has given my generation absolutely no ability to think at all. And I think that that's far worse than just dying. Like I think living a mindless, useless, and completely um, 
spiritually dead life is 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 as if you were already dead but i think it's worse than physically dying this is why the apostles were willing to die for their faith rather than to apostatize the faith because believing in something and dying for it was was much better than believing in nothing and dying because you're already dead when you believe in nothing essentially you're spiritually dead so that might be i don't know if people would be like oh that's just hardcore but i just think that's true dude i've talked to so many young people who cannot think at all about anything well, I think I think one of the things to point out there is is that the concentration camps became possible after the psychological death of Germany. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So right. people had to go mentally and deranged, become mentally yep. deranged yeah. for concentration camps to be thinkable. Exactly. Right? And there's this verse in the Bible where Jesus says, Don't fear the one who can kill your body. Yeah, right. But afterwards can do nothing to you. Fear the one who can throw both your body and soul into hell. Into hell. Yeah. And you could say that same statement in reverse saying something like this. Don't fear the worldliness, just the worldliness that can kill your body. Hmm. Fear the worldliness that can kill your body and, and destroy your, your soul. soul. Yep, exactly. Right? And the thing about modern, some of the, like this modern ultra, like hyper secularism, like it's a weird mixture. I don't want to just call it progressivism because I would no, like to nuance that a little bit. Yeah. But it's like, it's this, this sort of like modern, like completely amoral, mm-hmm. sensuous, Immediately reactive, presumptuous, yeah. ignorant mentality mm-hmm. produces a p- people incapable of thinking carefully, deeply, meaningfully. They get anxious to consider anything important. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they don't even know how to talk about truth or beauty or goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, all they can talk about what's up or what's down, what's happening in their environment immediately that they're reacting to like an animal. Mm-hmm. And that, that will destroy your soul. And it will ultimately create a situation which a lot of bodies will be destroyed too. I was going to say that it, whether that's through transgenderism it precedes, or it precedes or, the gulag, yeah, or through people committing suicide, they always get yes. to that other state, the state of spiritual death, before they get to the state of of physical death. It's almost as if the physical death is just like. I don't want to be flippant about it, but it's almost like insignificant compared to what they've already been through. That that's just kind of like the cherry on top where it's like somebody has gone through so much spiritual depravity and so much mindless living that put, you know, putting a bullet through their head was just kind of like the, the, the little thing that happened at the end because it had all, it had all already happened. All the bad stuff had already happened throughout their entire life, which is just horrible. I mean, it's sad. I, I've seen this literally happen with friends of mine who killed themselves. Yeah. And it's, if you read, if you read the two towers, um, where Wormtongue has control of Theoden's mind. Theoden's a king, right? And mm-hmm. Wormtongue, this man comes. Oh Grima, yeah, dude, that dude's he, a scumbag. He, he, he tells him. He tells him like first he tell he persuades him to believe in falsehoods. Yeah. Right. But over time, he makes it so Theoden can't even think at all, and and he encourages Theoden to just like not exert himself mentally mm-hmm. and emotionally as a king. It's just like look. It, it's hard times and what could you do? You can't, right? And there's this point where Theoden, when he wakes up, says, not only did he tell you lies, but he, you were, you had made, made him into a beast, right? Mm-hmm. By like, by like teaching him yeah. to not just not, to not just not think <laughs> correctly, but to not even uh, be a human anymore. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that's, that's happening mentally, that the, the, te- the technopoly is not just teaching you to think wrong things. Mm-hmm. The technopoly is taking away your ability to think. Mm-hmm. Okay. And let me, when it takes away your ability to think, it restructures your mind in terms of your desires, exactly. so that you're not even feeling well anymore. You don't. So, you don't feel. 
you can't even live by your feelings even your feelings are reordered to the desires that have been put into you yeah okay but let me let me add that on add on to that 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 character um that that him being animalistic my all my google things just started turning on i think it said it thinks i said google um all of the the, him becoming animalistic you could also you know for people who think oh well this is completely hopeless well you could look at Gollum, who had become completely animalistic in the same type of way who was completely consumed mm-hmm. by sin and power and the ring and everything who then in some way uh, you know whatever i'll say god uses him for this because i don't know what tolkien if what, in the providence of god Gollum is then used for the ultimate good of destroying the ring in the end whether that was because he was just selfish and wanted the ring back for himself or because maybe there's a little bit of good in him that and i think that was the point that tolkien oh, was trying no, to make no no, no it no, wasn't tolkien's really. point is it was it was not goodness at all it wasn't i so i have i've heard no. the other way but yeah maybe that's wrong no, Gollum is not taking it for the team. Gollum is, he, <laughs> he just, wants the he ring He just wants back. the ring, okay. I thought that was a little yeah. weird because I was like, yeah, he he bites the hand, the finger off and right, falls. He bu- and, and he's like, you know, you see that's a classic, the movie where he's like looking through the ring, reaching reaching for it. I guess, yeah, yeah it doesn't make any oh, sense. Oh, no, no, okay. no, there's no good, like, no. Okay, yeah. so he's, so, so I guess at that point just show- not, doesn't make any sense. <laughs> there's no, there's not really much hope for somebody like that then in the sense that like other other than that like sometimes the greed of some people can take away the thing that was killing that was making you greedy exactly and their treachery actually ends up being helpful good somehow yeah yeah Yeah. and one of the things that he wants us to recognize yeah yeah that god is working right now with the technopoly Mm -hmm. screwing with Mm -hmm. people's minds and all this kind of crap Mm -hmm. all this stuff that looks i think pretty dark at the moment yeah um tolkien wants to say yes but there is something above the yeah. clouds of Mordor, right. like like that moment where Sam Wise sees through the clouds, and for one moment he sees a twinkling star, yeah. and he's like, "There is something above the evil that is huh. working." Right, right. And so I think that that's important to remember in a moment like mm-hmm. this. Like I don't know how we're going to reach these younger generations right now. I do not know, mm-hmm. but I do know that God is working, and I think that mm-hmm. I think evil often overplays its hand. Yeah. Well, and I think well, that, that I hope that that's happening enough that in yeah. my generation I'll see revival, but I don't know. Yeah, I think something's going to happen, or the revival of World War Three. We'll see. But um, the but God okay, is not losing. We are just destroying ourselves. Yeah, for sure. I'm not. Yeah, and and maybe He's allowing that to happen for the revival to come in later generations or something like that. Who knows what's what's really going on? Who we got to wrap this thing up. And I guess maybe to answer that question. We'll figure this out later because we haven't read the book. But let me let me show you what I just got real quick. Just came in the mail. Uh, Crisis of Confidence by by uh, Carl Truman. So Andrea slid it under the door while we were recording, and so maybe yeah. that's just the answer to the question, you know. But um, but anyways, do you, so we'll, we'll maybe do another podcast. We'll ha- we have to get through orthodoxy someday like we'll have to do it but i think that the things that we talked about this podcast were good and are going to be helpful for people um if you like this podcast make sure you like subscribe do you have something you need to say at the end usually i've concluded no it's just about like i always think like when you when we start talking about something else other than what we said we were talking about i always have in my head wanting to get back to the other thing rather than really engaging with you on the thing you wanted to talk about. Uh-huh. So I, I don't think that, I don't know why I did a very good job today with that. Cause I was, I kept thinking like, we're supposed to be talking about orthodoxy. I, oh I yeah. Get it back to that. 
I felt like we but, were but talking you were, about. You were very um, adamant about talking about. I know you tried to bring it back like four right. times, and I just was like, no. You were like, no, this <laughs> Anglican. Listen, yeah. just make me talk to you about J.I. Packer. Just like let me Let's borrow just, the book, and like yeah. you wanted. If you want to talk about the Anglican thing, we can just we'll we can have Scott Cunningham on too and argue about it. No, no, let's have the other guy, not Scott Cunningham, the guy that I've gone to his church. He's he's good. His name is uh, he's at Bread of Life Anglican Church. His name is Matt Arndt. Have you heard of him? I know Matt Arndt. Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, if that's who you want, fine. But I don't I think, think he can articulate Anglicanism's heart better than Scott. I I, I don't think Christ Church is doing Anglicanism in the in the J.I. Packer Anglican way. Oh, okay. Um, Fair enough. But I'll give you the book and we'll talk about it. For those of you listening, you like this, make sure you like, subscribe, share this with your friends, leave us a five-star rating and a review. Send us questions if you have any, and we'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye. <laughs>